Hello and welcome to the TetraCast. We're already the majority of the way through April, somehow, and we've all been busy playing uh, a little game called Final Fantasy VII Remake. Some of us have been playing Persona 5 Royal, which obviously is a lengthy game that will take a bit to go through, especially if we're juggling multiple titles. And we've got a few other late April releases that some of us have been looking forward to. Uh, so it's a busy time of year before uh, we get into the more uncertain period of the summer with everything that COVID-19 has kind of upended. But I am your host, Brian Vitale. Joining me today are Josh Torres. Hello, hello. What's going on? We've got Adam Vitale. Hey, guys. And we have James Galicio. Hey. So uh, I don't think I'm just going to dwell on the preamble too long, too much longer. Let's just go into what we've been playing. So for some of us, it's been obviously Final Fantasy VII Remake. Uh, I don't know if we just want to start there. We talked about it a little bit last week, but maybe we've got some, uh, we've got, for instance, I'll just hand it off. Josh has been here this week and he's been playing that I know a little bit. I don't know if Adam's got a chance to, uh, to, to play it a little bit and, and they have their own opinions on what, what they've seen so far. So I'll just say, what do we think about Final Fantasy VII, Josh? Uh, I, yeah, I, I wasn't here last week, so I know a lot of you guys probably spoke a, a lot about it, so I'm not going to dwell too too long about it. Um, I'm, I think at, like, at the somewhere between Chapter 8 and Chapter 9, I've been busy with other stuff uh, besides that. But I think it's a, it's a really weird, interesting thing, right? Like you, When you're trying to think about reconceptualizing, like what is Final Fantasy VII? What would you incorporate in modernizing it, et cetera, et cetera? I know a lot of people have been probably you know uh, spoke about that at length i think the thing that really sticks to me out, out about it the the more that i play of it as I, I keep thinking back about mark cerny's talk a few months back about ps5 architecture and specifically on how uh he used like you know several examples like from uh, a jack game like the level design of a jack 2 game uh jack 2 and several others like you know with the mass effect elevators and how game designers specifically and understandably tune their level design so hardware uh, current hardware can support it so it can actually run it so it can be optimized so it's in a playable state that doesn't like kill the experience or crash the game and whatnot and i think it's remarkably impressive in final fantasy 7 remake how they you can tell everyone can tell yeah i that, think everyone knows kind of what you're alluding to in terms of this yeah uh, yeah because as many times in Final Fantasy VII Remake, whether it's like from the starting area, um, like in the in the slums, whether you're going to uh, ducking down a little pipe to go to those to those were rats, or you're opening a gate very slowly to go to another like you know uh, like scrapyard area with enemies, or whether you're squeezing yourself through little narrow corridors, you know like there. It's anyone who knows how these games work in general behind the scenes. Like, you know, they're trying to mass loading times. They're trying to mass something else for, for uh, loading in assets or whatever it could be that they're trying to uh, load in to uh, change the state of the game. So you go, you go from like an adventure mode to like a more combat mode and whatnot. I find it really impressive that Square Enix has found a way to not only incorporate that, but make it uh, make sense in the context of Midgar. Because when we when you think about Midgar, 
you think about that it, it is very uh, like a lot of machinery but very slums urban area like there there of course there's going to be areas where it's not really going to be all that clean it's going to be very messy whether you have to uh kind of squeeze yourself to like some areas that yeah. weren't you weren't people weren't supposed to go to like the, there, the there's a way kind of claustrophobic and constricted as it is yeah so there's kind of a bit of a tethering there yeah so the, and it makes you wonder when cerny talks about how if the next generation whether third parties well i imagine sony's first parties especially work are going to be the leading forefront and like uh, maybe a glimpse in how level design will change thanks to how the PlayStation PlayStation Five's like uh, SSD and all the other technologies in it are going to start trying to load in assets nearly instantaneously, so they don't have to go through uh, relatively slower seek times. It's like all right there, and then I'm not going to go too much about like I'm not going to hear sit here and talk to you like I know exactly what he what he meant, but I can kind of get the gist of like imagine what final fantasy 7 remake would have been like if it had if it didn't have those restrictions that current consoles do and yeah, where you didn't have to worry about seek times and what what would actually happen to the to the actual environment and construction of level design in final fantasy 7 remake and how will they like reconciliate that going forward with future episodes are they going to be built natively for next gen and then, well, are, is part two even even going to come out on PS4? You know, uh, who knows? But uh, it yes. makes me really interested. The more I play through that game, I'm like, what? What's going to happen to this? Everything. Well, there's a nice, there's a nice marrying uh, between. So th this isn't a spoiler. It's a premise mm -hmm. that Final Fantasy VII Remake only goes through Midgar, right? That's not really a right. spoiler. No, so, not, definitely not. Uh, Obviously, we'll go into more details about some of the more spoilery aspects that probably several people listening are already aware of uh, in a future cast when we decide to just open the door and go all in. That, that might be next week, potentially the week after. Um, but so the premise of the Final Fantasy VII remake only goes through Midgar. And then obviously anyone who's played the original knows that after that you go into, quote unquote, the world map. Which, you know, some, some cynical people might say, well, it's still linear because you, you still go to the cities or whatever in a specific order. But obviously not, it's just, it's not quite to the same extent as the, the point to point that Midgar was in, now in two iterations in the original and in the remake. So I think going to PS5 for a potential part two or whatever, this is the, kind of the perfect time to do it because now you've got, uh, uh, what's, what's the name of the planet on this? I'm blanking on what the name of the planet is in Final Fantasy VII. Uh, but the, now it's basically, is it just Gaia? Yeah, that's what it is. Um, and that's now we're at a point where it could be more open, even if it's even if you're still like railroaded to some extent in terms of progressing a narrative. It's not quite the claustrophobic, constricting, you know, steel environment of Midgar. So, if the PS5 really does open that like figurative door in the same place where the original game kind of opened it up to the players, I think that's the, the potential's there for something really special, but obviously we have to see if they execute on that. Yeah, because you you wonder when it comes to AAA development in the JRPG space is like, you people have been kind of hesitant about incorporating like a, the traditional overhead map that you saw back in the PS One era. Like you don't see that much anymore. People have re largely replaced that with just an open world map, like 
I think it's space, too abstract for a lot of players. Uh, sensibilities now, mm-hmm. like what? How is my character eight stories tall now outside the city? Like, obviously, yeah. <laughs> abstracted. I don't think people care, but in a, in a more detailed environment, I don't think you'll be able to have it as it was. Uh, if they implement it as a world map, I'm guessing it would look more like Final Fantasy XII, the Xenoblade, the, the wide linear zone base. Maybe maybe like the Dragon Age Inquisition. That's that's mm. how I envision it would be. It would be like regions of like this is the uh, this is the calm plains, and in the center of it is the city, and you know, and then you go onto the Mithril Mines, which will have a new map, you know, things like that. And it, it won't be like this weird abstract overhead thing. And it's also a weird one, too, because with Xenoblade, Dragon Age Inquisition, whatnot, it's not... With Final Fantasy VII, you have a sense that you're actually traveling a good chunk of the planet. And in, in Xenoblade and Dragon Age, like you're traversing like regions, especially in Xenoblade, like you're, you're traversing this... Uh, I forget was it Bionis and whatnot, and you have a right. sense of like, okay, these these how are how big these things are, but you're not really traversing like the overall planet. You're traversing this creature that happens to have like you know areas on, on its body that like makes sense in, in an abstract way of like you, you, there's a defined region, but unlike with like Fighting Seven, Seven, Eight, uh, Nine, and whatnot, like you. When they go to the overworld map, it's like, oh yes, you're actually going all over the planet. It's hard to convey how you do that these days with modern sensibilities. So I'm interested to right. see how they find a workaround with that. Because in those PS1 Final Fantasy games, if you think about it, the world map, the, the way that if you like go off the edges of the map and you come out the other side, those worlds have to be donuts. That's the only way like bad design works. <laughs> because if you go up the top, you come out the bottom. If you go out the right, you come out the left. So I'm guessing what this will do is it'll be Final Fantasy XII style, where you'll have some sort of like 2D overhead, like canvas of a map, and each each region will be like segmented off from each other. But then you'll have like the boundary region where it won't clearly state like if you go this way across the ocean, you're going to end up the other side, or you would eventually, but it wouldn't be as the immediacy. Like the PS1 game, I keep going back to the word abstracted because it was necessity to be that way. Where now it'll just kind of have to be kind of shrouded, where it's like. Here's the known region of the world that we're telling our story within, and everything outside of it is just out of scope. It's not, not the little dot border of... lines like in FF12, ever. Uh, and then if you cross that, it'll have like the little yellow warning sign in FF7 remake. Like, oh no, you're, you're not allowed to this part of this planet, the planet yet. <laughs> so, how do you feel about um, Final Fantasy VII's? You're you're so you're at like about the midpoint of the game, chapter nine or so. How do you feel about yeah. the like the like the pacing, the added story, both in terms of like the early we so to set the stage a little bit, we talked about we've talked about up through wall market. That's kind of what we've kind of left open. Okay. So we've talked we've talked mm-hmm. about the additional story with the um, avalanche crew in chapter four. We've talked about the um, the sector eight and sector five like side quest dealies in sec- in chapters three and eight. So how do you kind of feel about those uh, kind of expanded? narrative slash gameplay segments of the game it's kind of weird because a lot without, without going to spoil spoilery of it but there, there are things in the original ff7 that like you talk to this character and then life goes on in that game and this like you talk to that character and then you fight them and it happens all, like a lot in this game which kind of makes me uh like it, it's more comedic to me than anything else it's it makes sense in the context of the game it's fine uh I do like that 
the expanded architecture gives me a better sense of like what the the social economy is like in Midgar. Uh, in in the original one, it's very muddy looking, it's murky, and like you you get it, it, it like you know as as a little kid, it's like okay, I guess it, it looks kind of cool. This guy's a big sword, so awesome. But in this well, one. In- in this one, say, in the original, you barely go to the upper plate. At yeah. All. Where in this yeah, one, it... in chapter two, when you first meet Aerith, that part's expanded. And then chapter four mm-hmm. is like another new visit to the upper plate with Jesse's family. So it gives it it gives the game more time to contrast it's kind of like the two halves of the city. I think I think it is it is it is a bit weird trying to figure out the exact architecture of this game because uh, uh, the gameplay conceits, right? Like very early on when you're visiting jesse's house along the way you go into this motorcycle segment and then like depending on how long it takes you to get to that segment you don't have a great like sense of distance like how far is jesse's house away from like where they went where they were because you were on this highway forever it took you this long to you know get through all these waves of enemies and whatnot and and then after like the whole jesse's segment and that whole chunk of the game you go back in a very ridiculous way to the previous area that you're that you were in and then it makes you kind of it's like I don't under completely understand how we were able to get back here based on the distance that we traveled along that road. That's a good point. I I, I kind of noticed that, but not like in the front of my mind. Like, how does this make sense? Because obviously, you <laughs> all right, you gotta you gotta suspend your disbelief a little bit in terms of that. Mm-hmm. So early on in chapter four, you have like a motorbike mini game segment. So obviously, that's you know a horizontal tra- traversal as long as it takes you to clear the segment, which mm-hmm. then obviously Midgar is organized vertically. So you, you have to assume that you're elevating during that process. So I guess you're on a very like low pitched corkscrew. That's the only <laughs> thing that makes sense, right? If you think about it you're, too hard. You, you happen to be in the longest tunnel in Midgar. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean... I think I think it's perfectly fine for what it is. You know, I think it's really cool that they decided to really go all out and expanding what Midgar looks like, and it's also interesting, an interesting, interesting decision to finally see Midgar during the day because in the original you don't really see, Midgar is very dark and always felt very dark. It, was, it always felt like an eternal night, almost in the original game, in my memory at least. While in this one, sometimes like the way the the game engine's lighting handles it. Like it, it's very bright outside, especially when you're trying to go outside. You're from indoors, and you look outside like the door, and it's like very blindingly light until you actually move the camera and your character outside. It's like okay, I can see things now, you know. Um, well, actually, uh... the um, they kind of touch mm-hmm. on that a little bit with the uh, the lamps in chapter six when you're on your way to the second reactor. And I guess someone someone who's more who's more I don't know eloquent than I am could talk about how that's. Mm-hmm kind of like an interesting parallel in terms of the only reason they have light is because they've got these giant you know energy sucking lamps at you know it's hanging above them at the mercy of their shinra overlords etc etc there's none of the light is natural i guess is what i'm getting at when you're in the slums it's all this manufactured it's like the one kind of benefit because the, the slums don't get much of the benefit as the upper plate in terms of mm-hmm. the, the conveniences that Midco Energy provides them, except that it gives them light. Like, you know, be grateful for that, I suppose. Until We do get a glimpse of it, right, at the very beginning of the game, like at the cinematic where it actually showed... I, I'm not exactly sure which part of Midgard they're showing at the at the very beginning, where it's like zooming into the city from the, like the, 
the outside area. Do you recall? No, I was going to think, though, like while I was talking just now, how in, uh-huh. in chapter eight early on, or is it or actually I think it's chapter nine. It's, it's in the section where it's just cloud and era where they talk about how the upper plate there wasn't fully complete. So you could mm-hmm. assume that Sector 5 is the only sector of the city that gets natural light, and it's the only sector of the city that we know of where the flowers grow, and it's obviously where air at the center. So I think that all kind of is a nice little poetic uh, framing and theming of the city, where it's like, this is the only section where there's any hope or any life like apparent to the player, is in that one section where natural light can reach, mm-hmm. which kind of just goes, ties strongly into like the, the nature of themes of the game, how the, the ecological themes of the game. So I think that's a deliberate choice there to kind of show that in the other sections, it's all these lamps that just are sucking power. And they like the Shinra doesn't even have the power like metered in a way where it's 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 kind of haphazardly put together where in order to in order to progress through that dungeon, you're shutting off the lamps to power the lifts. It's all just it's very uh, crudely implemented, I guess, is what I'm getting at. It's it's not yeah. natural. It's it's something that seems dangerous and deadly. It's a bit slapped together in that aspect. It's like yeah. you're kind of putting band-aids on top of band-aids at that point. Mm-hmm. It's a, uh, other than that, I mean, I've kind of... I'm very... I love the battle system. Like, I'm very optimistic about how they they plan to enhance it if this is the baseline that they're going to go with going forward in this uh, remakes. it's uh, It feels very gratifying. I think the only... My, my one perk about the uh, battle system that I don't really, I'm not really finding myself liking is how much you have to corral enemies because they're always gonna uh, target the, the the character that the player is using uh, at any given time. So there is a bit I of like corralling your your. There's a bit of corralling the enemies in the middle of your of your uh, party to uh, manage aggro. So it feels like a lot of the um, materia the and uh, skills that revolve around like provoking them or taunting them to get the, their attention like if, if an ai was up uh had that task it's not really doing much in, in the grand scheme of things like they, they maybe they maybe look at them for one second hit them and then go back to who your your playable playable character is so if you really want to make the most out of like wh- how where enemy aggro is distributed you really have to uh, from my experience go hey uh use this character's atb then during their animation, switch over to another character. Use their ATB during their animation, switch over to another character. So they're always kind of shifting their attention, and if you want to minimize damage uh, between your party members, so that that's a bit of a, I guess, an improvement they can, they should try to incorporate. Like, how do we, uh, you there know, should be a more well defined like aggro mechanic. You get the one material yeah. that provokes, and then you know whoever you're playing is going to get aggro. But it'd be nice if there was a little bit more. Um... Like if it was based on like a defense stat or something. Like if you if you make someone. Do you think they should incorporate like how FF12 did it, like with the with the aggro lines? Maybe, or maybe have it an option. Um, but yeah, I do agree. There's a couple boss fights where it's like, oh no, I'm I'm playing as Tifa and she's up front and she's a little bit you know fragile. So I'm gonna play as Barrett a little bit, slap down a few skills so that the enemy stops paying attention to Tifa for just a moment, and then mm-hmm. then order her to do whatever abilities. Uh, I just kind of saw that as a quirk of a system, maybe not necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, one one thing that I do see a lot of people criticize, which I disagree with, but I'm going to try to give them a fair show, is uh, they talk about how the AI party members don't do a whole lot on their own other than 
kind of block and position themselves near an enemy. But for me, I kind of thought of it a lot, and I mentioned this in my review, I kind of thought of it a, a lot like a kind of like a Baldur's Gate real time with pause game where when I see that those characters have ATB charges or like an, an, an analog would be like action points in a divinity game, I would um, want to switch to that character and use their, I guess the better analog actually is just Final Fantasy VII, the original, where you can have multiple characters with their charge ready to go at a given time and you select mm-hmm. who you want to do what in what order against what enemy. So if I see that both Barrett and Tifa have ATB charges and I'm playing as Cloud, I kind of think of that as an extension of my own arsenal. Like I better instruct Tifa to do this or switch to her and do it myself or instruct Barrett to do this. Like I don't really mind that they're blocking and that's all they really do until you tell them otherwise there's been some talk about whether it should have gambits or whatever and i think that the prep the premise of gambits from final fantasy 12 is a good one but i think like you can't just slap that on and then i think if you did that you'd have to shift other things such as the aggro or such as the damage output of the enemies other because i feel like if you if you set it so that tifa would always do uppercut dive kick every time she had an ATB charge, I feel like that would just trivialize a bunch of the encounters as they're designed now. Yeah, you're auto, you're auto battling the game at this point if you're going to uh, add gambits as things are in, in that game. I'm not saying I, you I, couldn't I agree, implement yeah. that. It's just mm-hmm. that if you did, you'd have to shift other things around as well. Um, I saw like a comparison. Like I also saw some, some criticism where it's like, you, you can't manually jump. And to me, I'm thinking like, I don't know if that would really improve anything uh maybe it would but i kind of think of it where it's like if i'm playing a dark souls game or whatever it's like how come i can't move while drinking my estus flask that just that's bad design like i think that's i think that's deliberate you know just because it's inconvenient doesn't mean it's bad like i feel like you have to put some constraints on the player for them to engage with the systems and work around it I actually I really like that it's grounded it. for the most part. I, I like that the there, there's a certain gravity to the characters that you're controlling. Uh, I'm like uh, when I think about how FF15 did it, like that that was everywhere. It was it was very floaty. It, it felt very loose controlling. It, it like it, it was trying to go for something, and I didn't entirely hate it, but it always felt like like you were like wielding a toy, swinging it around. And like it didn't have an impact of what you were actually like doing to enemies. Or this one, like you, you feel that like every hit, even even though it like when if they're not staggered, it doesn't do, do a lot of damage. You feel the impact of like hits uh, going through, especially when they're pressured. And yeah, um, if you're playing as Cloud and you're fighting a helitrooper and you're like doing your little three aerial swings and it really is kind of clunky and it feels bad. I think that's more of the game telling you, yeah, you can brute force it this way, but you could also, I think I mentioned this in the last podcast, wait for them to attack, dodge out of their kick, they're going to get staggered or pressured, and then then you can go ham, or you can use like thunder magic, which is like impossible to miss if you have that set. Like There are other tools to make it more convenient, just because the brute force method of swinging cloud sword and doing like the auto aerial stuff is not super great. I don't think that means, oh they should have done a jump button and it's an absolute flaw that they didn't. Like, I just don't see it that way. I'm like, okay, why did they make this feel clunky? Is there a better way I could be doing this? And I think, yes, there is. And I feel that in general, like just because it's not convenient doesn't mean you have to make every option equally convenient because I think that's just on the, on the path to trivializing it. And then you have these boring encounters where you just do the same thing every time. And then I wouldn't feel so strongly about the battle system. The battle system of this game is by far the highlight for me. I I just loved I loved playing it 
through again on hard mode, uh, like pretty much right away, which I've never like played through a game twice back to back in a long time. It's just one of my favorite. I, I, I won't go too long. You can just read like the first seven paragraphs of my review if you want to read about it. Uh, it's <laughs> it's really, really good. There you go. Yeah, it's a, it's it's incredible what they've uh, accomplished with it. I have, and to the for them to largely be successful and also receive like the very positive reception for the most part on it, the uh, like is it's a monumental achievement because this is this is a task that like feels impossible on paper. Like how do you how do you resurrect Final Fantasy VII? How do you make that appealing to uh, the masses these days? You know, it's 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 tough and it's it's awesome what they did i, I really like it a lot it's great the, so we'll talk uh, okay, yeah we'll talk yeah, more we'll continue. At, uh, yeah i'm anticipating next week or the week after or as soon as we have like three or four people that have played through the game to the completion we're gonna we're, i feel like we're gonna we're gonna open the door on everything and just go go ham because there's a lot to talk about yeah i'll try i'll try to get it done before that for sure i want i want to jump in on that uh because I've been, yeah, I, I've been playing uh, another game uh, in the meantime for, for a while now, and I'm almost done. Um, Soccer Wars, um, that's coming out about a little over a week from now, on April twenty eighth. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt here and just say we've talked about Soccer Wars a few times on this podcast with uh, James, Adam, I, and George, but we've always just been like, man, I wish Josh were here to talk about Soccer Wars. So here you are. <laughs> Yeah, uh, at us. long last, educate uh, us about this. Yeah, I mean, I a few days on the site, I I kind of laid down my history with the series because uh, a, a lot of soccer wars uh, hasn't been localized in the West, especially the mainline games, and it's a weird series to talk about because a lot of old school RPG fans might have heard soccer wars here and there, but they never really got like what it was. Because it was only really super popular in Japan, like in the late '90s, uh, in the early 2000s, and uh, th- like mega popular to the point that like it rivaled things like Final Fantasy, Dragon Quest, Pokemon, and whatnot. So it's it, like that name still has like a resounding, like significance to it over there. And it's got like a it, it, to it. Yeah, it's kind of that's kind of the neat part about it, I guess. Uh, trying to talk about it with people because people who like know about it always are kind of curious like what the hell is this you know and it it was originally released in the saturn around 96 and it was uh on sega hardware for the most part up until a certain point and and the whole appeal of soccer wars is that it it's like (sighs) combining visual novels dating sims and adventure uh with a little light touch of rpg elements like the first two games were strategy rpgs and uh, the the whole the whole feel to it is a, akin to a Power Rangers esque thing because you're you take command of this guy at, at the original games called Ichiro Ogami, and he's been transferred to this uh, combat review uh, R E V U E uh, where the they're kind of the protectors of Tokyo from these uh, demons, uh, but the by day, their uh, their public I, like disguise uh, are stage play uh, actors and whatnot, and, and so a lot of soccer wars 
is you taking control of a, of a person and going around and having conversations with people. And th- that seems like, oh man, really? That's it? And the, the, the kind of interesting thing about Soccer Wars it's, is it's, it's so different from other games, that, so it's difficult to talk about because a lot of the game is time dialogue choices. So it, it gives you maybe roughly 10 to 15 seconds whenever a, a dialogue window opens up and you have like usually two to three choices on how you're going to respond to a person. They may, ta- they may t- uh, take to it lightly, maybe not. And it's not like Mass Effect where there's a clear cut like Paragon Renegade uh, option. It's all, it's all, it all depends on your observation of like how do you perceive this character to be and how will they um, to take uh, kindly to what you're saying. Uh, and that, that's kind of the, the weird puzzle aspect about it uh, because you, you want people to like you generally. I mean, there's a, lot, there's a bit of comical things here and there, but when you're, when you're trying to lead this, kind of, this combat group, yeah, you're trying to get to know what, what, how do you make them like you? Because you're you're a total stranger to them yeah. from the beginning. So, so sometimes these games dialogue choices, like the top option is always the most favorable. The second option is always like the pushback. The third option is asking for more information. So you're saying Soccer Wars doesn't have this like clear delineation of what the dialogue choices are. Yeah, yeah, and it's also the the whole like time period it's set in is really cool because it's like around. Uh, in the early games around 1920s Taisho era Japan. So a lot of it is steam powered and uh, the, the robots that you control in it to go fight the demons. Uh, you can see like the steam pipes coming out of them and and, and whatnot. And uh, you see modern society like having automobiles, but like in that, cl- in, like that uh, in, a, in a classic way uh, around that time period. So it's it's very... It's so out there. It's so different, and it's definitely difficult to explain. But I try to. Uh, I'm. I don't want to reiterate everything I said in, the, in that um, uh, article I did for the Soccer Wars series, uh, trying to reconciliate like what the, the the significance of the older games compared to the new one because the new one is a lot different in some ways to the older ones because it's now an action RPG, not really a strategy RPG anymore. Um, around the the third iteration and beyond the, the third, fourth, and fifth game, they kind of had this um, proto Valkyria Chronicles esque battle system where you had action points uh, to move around, and it, the, you know, like in Valkyria Chronicles where you move, there's like a meter going down. Uh, it's right. that's where it, that's where it originates from uh, in, in Sakura Wars Three, but uh, unlike unlike that game. You, you were all further restricted on resources in the, in the Soccer Wars games because depending on how far you move, your remaining meter would determine what, what you can do because those actions also cost meter as well. Where in Valkyria Chronicles, you can move, but I, th- I, I think the your attacks, uh, your attack resources were separate from your movement resources in Valkyria Chronicles, if I remember correctly. Like you yeah, can always right. attack. Yeah. So and in Soccer Wars, you were further constrained in that aspect. Um, but in, in uh, the new Soccer Wars coming out, it's a lot of it is running around talking to uh, this new combat review uh, and the cast of it, and trying to get uh, 
trying to find out who they are and whatnot. Like, uh, the first character you'll meet is a childhood friend. Uh, her name is Sakura Amamiya. Uh, she's a she's a swordsman, um, and you're trying to you know catch up with her because you haven't seen her in a while. Uh, you meet uh, also the the new general manager of the Grand Imperial Theater, which is uh, where most of the game takes place in. Uh, and the the Grand Imperial Theater's general manager is Sumire Kanzaki, which is one of the original characters, uh, one of the original girls in the in the first Soccer Wars game. So there's a, a bit of a lineage there. And then from then on, you'll see, you'll meet the other uh, characters. You'll meet this uh, book loving girl that can cast magic. Um, Claris, uh, you'll meet this uh, uh, world famous act- actress that's uh, you know uh, being recruited uh, by the new combat review. Anastasia, um, you'll meet the Shrine Maiden, um, Hatsuho, and this uh, ninja Azami, and th- those are the five main girls uh, of that game. And they they also have you know their own mechs, and they you go out and. Uh, you know, bash on demons who are you know the new threat and whatnot. But a lot, a lot of it is, um, like, it, it takes it takes g- gameplay cues from the entire Soccer Wars series because it's not only just these time dialogue choices. But say you'll 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 have this singular option, but there's like a little uh, meter that you can uh, determine how hard, like how intense you want to say something. You want to yell it. If you want to murmur it, and then that'll uh, be received uh oh, I didn't know differently. That they had like you could say the same thing two different ways. Yeah, yeah. And and there's also and and the the interesting thing about these games is there are unique responses to every kind of uh thing that you say along with always an option to just stay silent and that'll have its own unique uh response on how things play out as well. Sometimes it's a good thing that you stay silent completely. Uh you know. And so it, in, instead of a role-playing game in the sense of like you're leveling up like in battle or with stats, it's more of a role-playing game of how of the character you want to be uh, in these games. And it, that has direct benefits in battle as well. So the higher the trust that like you're, you forge with your uh, characters, the better they'll do in battle. Like in, in this one, it's now it's an action RPG. You have, um, it's all real-time combat. So it's kind of a hack-and-slash Dynasty Warriors-esque uh, kind of thing, where if you there's a where if you dodge at the moment that an enemy is about to attack, you go to bayonetta, which time slow mo, and then how your damage is dealt is by this meter in battle that levels up the the better you do. There's like if you dodged, if you uh, killed an enemy without getting hit, and it'll like continually leveling leveling up in battle as you uh, and as you raise that. It'll uh, give you better attack and defense in battle, and whatnot. And you can kind of get a boost on these uh, on that meter from when battles begin, depending on how high your trust is with the character that you're uh, partnered with. Uh, so there there are gameplay benefits to doing well in the adventure aspect of it, and it's um so it it's it a doesn't really feel cool... like two divorced halves. They're 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 tied together in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the, it it feels interwoven uh, pretty well for the most part. Uh, the big big change with this one, aside from the combat changes, is that your um, in the old games, it was kind of it was always two D static portraits when you're interacting with people, 
Uh, this one is fully committing to the 3D uh, CG future. Uh, so it, a lot of it is people uh, communica- communicating body language, uh, the way they speak, the way the, the way they respond to you. And also, the one of the more interesting things about it is that there are uh, the way they use the camera in these scenes as well. It's very dynamic now, especially if you're as you're making a choice. Sometimes, you know, as you're thinking about a choice, the the camera will decide to pan. It'll decide to like the view from an overhead view. It kind of adds to a more dramatic feel to it, uh, which is kind of it's it's not a bit it's not like the biggest deal, but it adds something to it that I kind of really like because there there is a certain intensity to like what you're what you're how you're responding to. Now to it, it's uh it's very cool. It's a part of me is a little nostalgic about it. Getting at in terms Mm -hmm. of the camera stuff, like it's a completely different game. But I always think about the the proto Bioware method, where it's just like people standing in a circle, and then when they're done talking to you, they just like exit stage left or Bioware face. Yeah, (laughs) but um, this is this uh, this the only comparison I'm making here is in terms of the camera, nothing else, because the games are like completely different. But yeah, in Greedfall, yeah. a lot of a lot of times in the dialogue scenes, when you're making choices or during just the conversation, it'll pan to like overhead views and other angles, which is it's not you know it's not that significant of a thing, but it is just nice just to have something a bit more interesting visually than just. Well, it's the same for like shot sort it's of thing. right. It's the same for like movies too, where if you have two people talking to each other, you don't want just like shot reverse shot exactly. <laughs> Yeah. So in a game and, all about conversation, that's a smart thing to, to implement. I think the the really interesting twist that this game has to it, com- uh, compared to the older games as well, is that it it incorporates other combat reviews from all around the world. Like the other games have lightly dabbled in it, but this one kind of makes it a center center point because at some point early in the game, they they hold they hold these uh combat review world games. It's kind of like a tournament of sorts. But you'll start meeting uh, other combat reviews, like from uh, Shanghai, from Berlin, from uh, London, and whatnot. So it makes it uh, a more internationally focused story uh, as well, which is an interesting uh, twist to it. Because in the older games, in the first two, it's uh, Japan focused. In the third one, it's Paris, and the uh, third one is my favorite. Uh, amazing, but it hasn't been localized. Um, and in the fifth one, it's the New York Combat uh, Review. This one, this would be technically the sixth mainline game in the series, but it's a uh, it's a perfect gateway to people who've never played a Sakura Awards game before. It's tailored for them. Uh, like I said in my uh, write up for it, it is a little bit like the Force Awakens of the Sakura Awards series, which is not not a bad thing. Like it, it's definitely reintroducing the Sakura Awards style to a new generation of players and whatnot but there is a certain significance to it as you're running around the theater it is very much pulling on veterans heartstrings as well because in the in the old games you really couldn't run around the grand imperial theater in this fidelity obviously so constructing it from the ground up uh, with modern technology is uh something else especially when you start uh visiting rooms that like were in the first soccer awards and it's like oh how did they update this it's very it's very separated from them. It's, it takes place well, like around 13, 12 to 13 years after the last iterations of Soccer Wars. So a lot has changed. But it has a weird meta commentary to it as well because the, they're fully aware. The game is fully aware 
that what they're trying to do, they're trying to contend being the shadow of their past legacy. Like uh, the the combat review uh, from the get go in this game is not in a great state. Even its actresses and their plays, like they're kind of the laughing stock of Tokyo. Uh, when you start out, and it's kind of up to you at how you're going to shape the this whole thing up and kind of get it back to its former glory. Um, people hold a lot of respect for Sumire because she used to be part of the original cast uh, in it. Like uh, even in the in game, like they they were like they're legendary people and whatnot. And you, you could they kind of start start to contend a little bit about that, but it's a it's an interesting, very interesting kind of self aware look at itself and be like, how how do we bring this back? How do we how do we how can we ever uh, hope to compare to the greatness that our predecessors had? You know, like it's yeah, it's a, way, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a it's, it's a big go for it. I was just gonna say it's um it's very similar to like it's like it's kind of between the what the Force Awakens is and what Final Fantasy VII Remake is in terms mm-hmm. of trying to live up to this legacy while telling something new. Yeah, it's it's a big big underdog story, and I think it goes in interesting places when it go when it starts looking at itself like that. Um, I'll, I'll talk more about it uh, in the full review and my my final thoughts on it. Uh, I'm I, at this point I'm wrapping it up, uh, but I can only talk about it at a certain to a certain point at the moment. But uh, if you're interested at all in the Stalker War series, um, uh, I, I wrote something up for the site uh, linking the the past to the present of Stalker Wars and what this series used to be and what it is now, uh, and trying to you know get a better look for uh, for people to contextualize like why this is a, a, a bit of a big deal of like why this is coming out, you know, and it's cool. So, yep, that's linking past to the present, one of the features on the site right now. And then Sakura Wars comes out a week from yesterday, I believe. So next Friday. I, th- I think April 28th. So I think in a little over two, no, a little over a week. Oh, yeah, you're right. I was confusing it with uh, Trials of Mana, which will also yeah, be talked yeah. about later. But yeah, those those two games are both late April. So in just over a week, Sakura Wars will, will land. And yeah. We'll put up our full review from Josh along with the uh, the current preview feature that he has. And I guess as a, as a small like um, shout out as well, I've been uh, playing a bit of that uh, closed beta for Guilty Gear Strive, the new uh, Guilty Gear coming out sometime this year. Who knows if it's still this year? But um, it's... Uh, uh, from what I've been hearing people talking about, it might be better if I played it a bit. <laughs> It's a, it, it, you know, like as all closed betas are, so it's a bit rough. Like I know Dragon Ball Fighters went through a rough closed beta as well. So it's, it's right now it's the way it's being handled is you, there are certain time periods you can only uh, play against the computer. And then there are certain designated time periods where you can like access the online lobbies and whatnot. And it, it's a, it's a very pretty game. There are still some uh, mechanics to be fine tuned around it and whatnot that there it's a, it's a it's a fairly big departure from guilt, what Guilty Gear is because they made a lot of uh, changes around the edges and the core mechanics to make it uh, more accessible to people. So uh, people, you know, all have their their own thoughts on how how they've uh, implemented that. I think the the weirdest change for me from the get go, and I'm not sure if I really like it, is uh, the way they've constructed their online lobby system. You got you, ha- you guys have to see uh, uh, videos and. Uh, of this because it's the way they're they handled it. it's like a it's like a pixel art 2d style and my 
people aren't far off when they say it is kind of like a weird mixture of Maple Story and Habo Hotel when it comes to the presentation of it, um, where you run around these lobbies um, that have multiple floors to it. And if you want to challenge other people to a fight, you have to like get out like a weapon that you chose for your character. Like you have this whole hit character customization tutorial before you hop in. And then you give them a weapon. It's like it could be like anything, like a spear, a katana. I have like a little like a hammer that you get from the arcades from the games where you need to bop heads. Um, and and then you on on paper, you you challenge people by holding that out, and then you guys stand by each other and then wait for the confirmation screen to uh, to you know pop up, and then everything should be gravy. In practice, it's a whole clusterfuck shit show and <laughs> i was trying to uh play last night with one of our other uh staff members lucas and that wasn't really the working well there's there are periods in the beta where it wasn't really working all that well and now they're trying to give like um like tips on their twitter saying oh we're finding uh there's problems with like people clustering together and whatnot because of all the connections so um if you, if you guys can like stand apart from each other, you try to fight each other. Yeah, exactly right. Like, please, like, social distance your matches away from each other so it doesn't, you know, (laughs) overload it. It's, that's, these are wild decisions, and I don't know if I'm entirely down with them. I I enjoy playing the game when I actually get into a match, but, uh, you know, it's, right now, I, I I feel okay about it, but it's been a while since I played Guilty Gear in earnest as well. I, I have, I, yeah. it's I pulled weird up a to video say, of the uh, of the lobby while you were talking about it. And it's yeah, not what I expected. It's like that old like um sword and sorcery like indie game, pixel oh, yeah. side scroller sort of like very like I don't know what the correct termination is, but like very eight bit style. Mm-hmm. It's not what I would expect yeah. from a game lobby. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I think I'm I, okay I think... with it as someone who's not into really fighting games. I'm okay with lobbies being mm-hmm. kind of adventurous and different and abstract but this is not what i was expecting so uh, it's weird because they think they unveiled this on april fools and everyone's like of course haha april fools and it's like oh wait this is real oh, <laughs> and uh, i i'm with you in the sense that like it looks on theory it looks nice and it should be if it was working well i'm sure it'd be okay but i, I personally if i'm booting up a fighting game and i want to boot up on the online mode of a fighting game. All I really want is to get into matches in and out fast in, a, in an efficient method. And I think older fighting games that really focused on it being menu-based only worked better for me because like, I knew how to... I just wanted to get matches in. I can see the design decisions of why they went this route because it looks a lot fancier and on paper should be working <clears throat> well and it should be making sense. But I, I don't think they've quite hit the mark uh, with, with this first impression of their online lobby system. Like, I just want to play games as much as I can, you know, in a fighting game when I'm connecting to it online. I'm not looking for, like, to customize my character to roam around, you know? It's too many frills and tassels can just be a distraction past a point. Yeah, I, I hope... I, I mean, they're still obviously closed beta. They're uh, They're distributing surveys around and asking for feedback and i sh- I'm assume uh this current online lobby system will be at the top of uh people's uh recommendations to improve feedback. let's say 
going by what I've seen people talking about, maybe the UI might be up there too. Yeah, UI is definitely going to be up there too. There's a, the, there are there are some little tweaks to the UI that I like. The uh, there's a usually in guilty games, uh, guilty gear games, there are uh, there's a tension meter that's like basically your super meter. Uh, and then you can use it for other stuff, but for the most part, it's uh, you can use supers off of them and other stuff. And uh, what I like in this game is that they make it very obvious uh, whether you have fifty uh, percent meter and one hundred percent meter by these little gear icons that like fl- uh, like spew off green flames off of them. And that for me, that really helps me like determine. It's like okay, I have these resources at this moment. I don't have to like make a a very big conscious effort to like determine whether I have enough resources to do the things that I want to do now. So that's the that's the part of the UI that I like. There are other things about it that I, I don't really like, but that's the one big like I hope to keep that. Yeah, yeah, that's uh that's my brief experience with the Guilty Gear Strive beta. I'm probably gonna play a little bit more of it. Uh yeah hopefully like you days. and Lucas can maybe get some get some actual matches in. Yeah. Before it closes up. Hopefully. All right. So the other uh, major RPG release of April was Persona 5 Royal, which Adam has been playing a lot of. So I don't know if you have further. Th- I think you brought it up that you had just started it previously, but weren't really far enough. To I actually don't before. think maybe I brought it up. it up. All right. Maybe you brought it up before no, we I started didn't. recording. All right. So Persona 5 Royal, how do we feel about it? Okay, so first of all, what we did bring up before was that Cullen reviewed it for us on our site. Um, he hasn't been on the cast to talk about it since then. Um, he really, really likes the game, and he was a big, big fan of the original, and so he was a big, big fan of the of the re-release. I'm just going to say up front that I'm not as big a fan of Persona 5 as he is. I don't dislike the game, but it definitely is not does not crack into my favorites of Persona or the SMT series or even just RPGs. So if you're listening to this podcast and you really love the game, that's totally cool, but it's just not like exactly my thing. Um, but I wanted to play Royal anyway, and since my my copy of Final Fantasy VII uh, Remake was delayed because of shipping delays, I was like, yeah, I just figured I'll just play this while I have it since it came first. Um, and so I didn't really want to talk about it until I finished the game because I didn't want to... So Royal is basically Persona 5... And for the majority of the game, it's pretty much the same game with some numerous but minor tweaks kind of hidden all over the place, um, both with story and uh, combat and other gameplay elements. And I didn't really want to just touch on that. And of course, at the end of the game is when you get into like the new narrative story content chapter, like the new semester is what they call it. So first I'll just talk, I'll start with the thing I, I like, like the big reason, the big advantage this game has over the original is it does have some smart but small tweaks to the dungeon design. In the original Persona 5, uh, some of the later dungeons especially had some kind of tedious uh, tasks and elements in their later dungeons and puzzles that you had to uh, get through to surpass these palaces. Um, and the the re-release basically lightens up on that a little bit. One specific example, first of all, I'm not going to spoil anything um, at all in this game, but uh, so the Spaceport Palace 
in the original Persona 5, there's a part of it where you basically have to like sneak up on on these shadows and learn about them and kind of pick dialogue options and basically select the right one to get a key card from them to open certain doors. And oh, it's yeah, just kind of, yeah, yeah it, it just kind of feels like this really tedious section where it's just like, it's so different from everything else in the game. Like, you're actually, there actually is a slight stealth. Well, I guess there's some stealth other, elsewhere in the game, but it's just, it, it was just kind of annoying and boring and like, why am I doing this? So in Royal, there's a tiny bit of that, but you can also just brute force your way through everything where it's just like, let's just fight them. And then you just literally just fight these shadows and get a key card. Um, so that's one specific example where it's like, yeah, that that element in the original was not needed. And the fact that they just kind of smoothed over that is a good thing. Um, there's also a, a couple other smaller elements, like certain certain safe rooms. And safe rooms are basically where you can kind of warp around the dungeons. Uh, are Their positions are tweaked slightly, which makes, like, if you have to revisit certain locations in a dungeon, if you're looking for a certain thing, like a certain demon or whatever, is easier. And also, dungeons now have these additional elements where you're looking for will seeds. Will seeds, basically all they ultimately give you are new accessories. And so it's like this optional, it's like these optional treasures you can find throughout these dungeons and there's some optional puzzles to get to them. And none of them are like super tedious and it's just kind of a nice exploration element. So if you, you it's something to look for when you're going through a dungeon rather than just critical, critical pathing through the, to the treasure. So that, in terms of royal tweaks, is one of the more advantageous ones are some of the dungeon design tweaks. Um, but one thing that never that never really sat well with me as I was playing through it is that it it throws a lot of conveniences at the player, and this kind of gets back to what you were saying earlier, Brian, about Final Fantasy VII remake, where uh, I don't remember exactly how you worded it, but you can't just make everything as convenient as possible because else else it just kind of gets dull. Um, is that is that effectively what you were getting at before? Yeah, I, I was saying that if you just make everything that's the most inconvenient to the player and make it convenient at some point it's no longer engaging i like an analogy that i thought of in my head since then just in the last 60 seconds or whatever the last few minutes is imagine if you're playing chess but every single piece could move like a queen like man that would be convenient hell yeah very fun (laughs) so that's kind of what i think of like oh what if what if we just take this one section of the game that is a roadblock for the player and just make it easier just slightly and then take the next one down the ladder and do the same thing and i feel like there's obviously you want to do that to some extent so that it's not just this incredible burden that's no fun to get around but if you go too far you end up with this very bland game of checkers i don't know yeah so i was um that made me think of persona 5 royal a little bit because it does throw a lot of conveniences at you it's easier to gain exp it's easier to gain money. It's easier to abuse the fusion system to get overpowered demons. It's easier to ambush every single enemy in the game. Uh, I actually forgot for a moment, like literally forgot what the battle theme was because the battle theme when you ambush someone is different. Uh, it's That battle theme is takeover versus the uh, like you never saw coming. Yeah, that one. And like I actually forgot, like oh that that battle theme is still in this game. I just never hear it because I always ambush absolutely everything because it's almost impossible not to ambush an enemy. It's so easy, and like I actually found myself. So one reason why it's easier to get all these is a tweak that they made to mementos, 
where one, a new character named Jose, and yes, it's pronounced Jose, not Jose, which I thought was a little weird because it looks like a Spanish name. Um, uh, he has the ability to basically increase the amount of EXP and the amount of uh, money that you get for fighting enemies in mementos. And you can pretty relative, like only a few months in, so a, a good chunk of the way in the game, but not super far considering how long the game is, you can pretty much raise your exp and money gain but to like 160 percent each and like before i even realized it i was overpowered and had more money than i knew what to do with and uh before like the end of the game like as you get to like the spaceport palace and the casino palace and things like that like i was hitting the money limit like literally like 10 million yen oh my and God. i was overpowered to the point where when you're when you're overpowered enough if you've been doing the ryuji a confidant you can kind of just run into enemies and skip the battle and but get the exp and money um and that actually makes it that yeah so that that actually is a that makes it even faster to gain exp and money if you can skip battles and just literally run over everything and in mementos i literally mean run over because you're driving around mona car and like i just kind of roughly halfway through the game which is you know a good 40 hours in so not like right away i just was like I'm, I'm already super overpowered i have more money than i know what to do with and also like with the game's time system uh morgana doesn't ask you to sleep as often so you can go out more you have basically more time to do things like confidants and things like that um and raise your social stats or whatever and on one hand i don't I don't totally mind it because in the original game it was kind of annoying that like there's no reason like or for Morgana to tell you to sleep so often it's like why can't I do anything with this time right now but on the other hand the fact what you said before about like too many conveniences I sort of started feeling that like I'm not even I'm not even engaging with the game systems anymore I'm just blasting through everything um and by the time you get to the end of like an 80 90 hour game perhaps it's not not the worst thing in the world that you can kind of just blast through it at that point but i kind of just felt like what's the point of me playing this it right now too, if I, you, you think it ramped too quickly <laughs> to that point i was level 99 before i reached the uh the uh new semester new stuff? and i was not <laughs> really trying to be oh, shit. um so i just kind of like uh yeah that's that's oh man this is kind of a little concerning for me because uh, I do want to get the Persona 5 Royale and like everything you said, like it, it kind of expands, expands on my fear of what's been happening. Like in this, in the past few years for like RPGs, um, especially um, mobile RPGs um, where they started uh, implementing systems where people can just bypass like, what you would consider gameplay for the resources that you would need. So like in mobile game RPGs, you'll have uh, resources like skip tickets or just flat out like you can, uh, if you got perfect ranks on this stage, you can just like uh, rerun it again without like having to play through it. You'll just see like a little mini screen and you'll get the resources from that and whatnot. And however many times your, your stamina will allow you to uh, accommodate for that. So at that point, you're just really playing a game to... You're really just booting up a game just to see resources flow into you rather than just, like, go to the, go through the act of, like, playing the game itself. And, like, you, I, you start seeing it, like, 
again and again in like in different forms and like throughout all these mobile games and now a little bit into the console game spaces and it's like it it's one of those things that like i kind of fear of like i hope this kind of concept like goes away a little bit because i don't really like the the feeling of like i'm just playing a game playing a game just to like accrue resources without really engaging with what, what i'm playing I guess yeah. There's an old, there's an old a little Penny bit Arcade of... comic. Go ahead. Sorry, it's just there's an old Penny Arcade comic, and I don't think Penny Arcade is that like, you know, it's not it's not that what's the word cerebral. It's 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 mostly you know, enlightening jokes. It's it's a, yeah, it's it's an online comic. But there's one that I thought was like more profound than others, where I forget exact. I read this years ago, where I don't remember which one's Gabe and which one's Tycho, but he's playing a game. And it's like, I'm not enjoying this, but I'm going to keep playing it because I love seeing bars fill up. And I just think absolutely I'm playing, uh -huh. I'm playing like a game where it's like, none of this is fun, but the game tells me that there's X out of Y of this. And I want that to be 100%. So I'm going to fill this bar up. And it, it, like, it almost feels like I don't care how mundane or trivial or dull or boring it is to get there, but I want to see that bar fill up. And I, like, I'm not saying I'm above that because I'm certainly not. There have been tons of games. I think any one of us who have... Uh, gotten gone for platinum trophies or 100 percent achievement have done the same thing where we've done something that really wasn't that fun like maybe a mini game where you had to get a high score like kingdom hearts 3 oh in order to get the platinum i gotta get a high score on this Zora robot mini game i better go do that i don't think it's very fun but i want to see that bar fill up or in this case i want to see that trophy ding and i always feel like there, there's a tipping point where if you go too far in that direction i think you can really compromise stuff to a kind of a damaging degree where it's like this isn't this is no longer fun this was designed just to be that carrot on the stick for people to chase and therefore they will play it and they will you know they will engage with the game because they're told to because they're saying hey if you do this for us we'll give you this we'll give you this this little this little medal or this trophy or this bar um so that's what i was thinking of when you were talking about uh i like i haven't seen it in the mobile environment in terms of resources but that's what i was thinking of when you were describing that yeah so i don't want to be like completely negative on it there are a few editions that are more just amusing fun cool editions that i liked um if you played persona 3 and 4 one of the more amusing sections of those games where you could bring or at least in uh certain versions of those i don't quite remember which ones they're in exactly but like you could bring catherine or elizabeth from the velvet room out into the real world and they kind of act like aliens in a way because they don't have any idea how humans work and that's why they go out um you know what i'm talking about right yeah yeah um so like elizabeth and especially catherine her name's catherine right i'm not getting that I, I honestly have don't remember margaret, is margaret margaret and elizabeth is that the names shoot i think i think margaret was personal catherine four. Yeah, Elizabeth was three. Mar okay, so Margaret not Catherine. Four. Sorry. Yeah. Um, but you know who I'm talking about. The Velvet Room attendants. Yes. Uh, one of the additions to Royal is that you can bring the twin wardens, uh, Justine and Caroline, out to the real world. And there it's kind of an amusing, like there's these, just these amusing scenarios where they are, once again, like acting like aliens. They don't know how humans work, but they also kind of act like children as much as they kind of pretend that they're not children. Um for example, one of the things you do is you 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 take them. This is just one example. You take them to like the burger place, and they're like, "Why does the burger look like a spaceship?" And then one of them uh, is very very disgusted by pickles. 
Um, Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's another there's another uh, there's another one where you bring them to the coffee place and they're like, "What is this black sludge?" Uh, and it's just like kind of a, it doesn't like add anything like gameplay wise. Really, you get you get skill cards for doing it, but um, which is one another another way the game is easier is you get a bunch of skill cards. Uh, but uh, just kind of an amusing thing is like, yeah, I like this addition. It doesn't do anything, but it, it kind of reminds me of the, what those moments in the older games uh, with these characters and kind of does something with them. So again, I'm not going to spoil anything, but I had heard from reviews and impressions that the um, new semester content was really good. And so I went into it, maybe not like, high expectations but I, I i had that on my mind like oh, okay people really like this content the, the precedent and, had been set yeah the precedent the um, preconception right and i i don't want to think that i was like i had like super high expectations or anything but we're really kind of scratching my head and kind of cold and again i'm not going to spoil anything specifically here but first of all when you get to the end of the main game of persona 5 it still feels like this is the end. Like for a moment there, I was actually kind of wondering, did I miss something? Like, did I not get to the new semester? Cause this feels pretty final, but it's not <laughs> in Royal. There, there, there is, there's like a way to like kind of screw it up and not get to the new semester, I think. Yeah, right? you, you basically have to get your confidant ranks with the new characters up high enough before certain mm -hmm. points. But like I got them up to basically as high as you possibly could. So functionally I knew like I should be getting the new semester content here, but when you get to like the normal original game final boss, it still feels like the normal final boss. And I, I was actually wondering for a moment, like, did I miss the new content? Because this feels like the ending, um, but it it wasn't the ending because it, it eventually went into the new content. Um, so there's sort of this congruency thing there at first, like, oh, I guess there's still more. Um, but it sort of felt like, to me, like a directed DVD sequel or something. Like, <laughs> oh, there's 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 a there's a new thing going on um there's a new the game the game brings in a new theme i won't say what it is I, i'm really careful not to spoil anything here but it brings in a a, a a new theme um to this new section about like this what it's trying to tell and i won't spoil anything but it, it feels like when i when i start, when i got what it was getting at it was just like i've seen this before and i don't think persona 5 royal is really um bringing anything new or interesting to this theme that I basically have seen other shows and games and whatever. And um, it kind of felt really robotic to me because it, how it incorporates the existing cast of characters. Whereas like, here's what, here's how it relates to An, here's how it relates to Ryuji, here's how it relates to Yusuke, here's how it relates to Morgana, here's how it relates to Haru, here's how it relates to Futaba. So basically it, it kind of relates this new theme to each of the characters that you've spent you know dozens of hours with already but it kind of felt like a retread of their personal stories and it's like i already know you know like you're just kind of bringing this up again and it kind of felt like this was a done and over thing and now you're just bringing this up again and it felt like robotic and like like a checklist or something and then you sort of solve an issue and then you um not to, again i won't spoil anything but you kind of go through each character again like now let's now let's reflect with on uh, now let's reflect with ryuji now let's reflect with morgana now let's reflect with yusuke now let's reflect with futaba now let's reflect with haru and it just kind of felt like it felt really inorganic <laughs> to me at that point um like the, so part of this theme does revolve around kasumi obviously being the new character 
And that part, I think, was okay. I think it would have been better if it just focused this theme on her as a character rather than trying to, like, spread it out across the cast. Um, that would have felt more organic to me. Like, this is her problem and her story, and this is the reason why she's added to this game. Um, but just the way that it approached it with the other characters just didn't feel right to me. But even still, it kind of just felt like a shallow, robotic, direct-to-DVD thing. And also, I was a little bit disappointed at how I saw, you know, reviews said how, like, this this new content was incorporated seamlessly or very congruently or whatever. But it, it still felt like an attachment to me, which, you know, I guess is exactly what it is. So you can't expect it to not feel like that. But it just, it still kind of felt like a, an after story or an extended epilogue. Um, and I just didn't but really what you're gel saying with it. Is that it still felt like an Atlas expanded release. It felt like The Answer. It felt like Marie. It felt like yeah, yes. chapter in, in uh, Devil's Some Driver. of the, So like you do talk with Kasumi and the uh, counselor Maruki um, beforehand. And of course they play a role in the, in the new section. Like that shouldn't be a spoiler, like obviously. Um, they were newly introduced. So, like, you do see them beforehand, but you don't really do a whole lot with them until the new stuff. So it still feels like you have to wait to get to that. Um, and it just... It just, I know some people really, really love the themes, and maybe I just don't attach to it as easily, but it, it, it just did not sit well with me. Um, yeah. You, I mean, you would think that what they would do like a more like you would think they would put in the effort to make it a more seamless transition of like how maybe the the, the actions that you've, you've taken would incor would transition better into the new content if they're already doing the work of like kind of tinkering with the whole game for this updated release and then charging full price for it again you like at some point you would you would feel you want it would be expected for them to do that if they're going to go through this whole you know, I'm I, I, kinda, I kinda it, wish it kind Colin of was easy. here. I, I kind of wish Colin was here because he would disagree with me, and just so we could kind of get his side of point of mm -hmm. view on it. Because it's not like the game doesn't have new content before the the branching point. Like there are moments where you will talk with Kasumi, and she will uh, mention um, like after a certain event in the game. Uh, so I'll just say surrounding Haru. And like, there's a point where Kasumi talks about it, and it makes sense. It's like, okay, so she's we're taking a new character that's newly introduced and talking about an existing event, so that's new. Does it feel but, like they they've only done the bare minimum though? It's just like it feels like they're just a check mark, just making sure that like at least they put a little bit of sprinkle. So there is one new moment early, uh, around um, one of the later months that kind of is like a short preamble to the new content and that's like the one moment where it felt a little bit more cohesive to me like oh they're, they're actually introducing like a new event here rather than just like a new conversation or something um and that's like the one moment where i kind of felt like okay so this is sort of a teaser for the new content um but it's, there really only is just one moment that specifically relates to the new content that sort of pops up outside of you can do like a confidant um, relationship with Maruki, for instance, and with Kasumi, um, that kind of start to bring in the, uh, to the new content as well. But I, I still feel like the it doesn't it, it doesn't really mesh as well as I would have hoped in my personal and, take on it. And I guess that without without spoiling, there's there's really 
besides that like one moment and those confidant uh you know s links uh with, with them like the do they make do they do a, a do they make an attempt to at least try to introduce them to the cast or like the main story in a meaningful way so it transitions over in a in a seamless manner that doesn't feel like it's just once again like your typical atlas bolted on type of deal like the, the, does it feel like they at least integrate well into the existing uh cast and content to make it feel earned into that transition i'm i'm going to say not as well as i would liked mm. um there's some stuff with kasumi right near the end of the original game that's a little bit better um but it still doesn't feel super meaningful at that point in my opinion <laughs> i, I want to get want to get around to it i'm, I'm super curious uh, but it's just i i've here i've heard very mixed things about it this despite all the seemingly universal praise for it it's just well this is actually one of those things that i've sort of heard about this is slightly hearsay but like um when the when the review started coming out, I know there was some commentary on like, wow, it seems like the West Western audiences like this more than the Japanese audiences. Um, and I, I guess Japanese audiences, this is against hearsay, maybe weren't as well taken for whatever reason uh, with the new content. Mm -hmm. um, I just I saw some chatter about that, so I, you know I can't specifically be an expert on it, um, but just like I did see some chatter on that. But yeah, I just, it, I don't know. I just, I, I, I don't think the new content is like worth it for the replay. I actually, like I said before, uh, some of the dungeon tweaks I think are better. Um, there are some other things that are added to the game, but otherwise it's just like, it, I probably would say this is the version to play because of those dungeon tweaks unnecessarily. Um, but there's just a few things I'm just not super fond of <laughs> yeah it is interesting to be able to hear two kind of very different takes we had colin's review which was glowing and then we have yours which is a little bit more measured uh, but you had a pretty high opinion of the original of the base game you're, you're just saying that you were kind of feel like i, I like persona experience. 5 but i wasn't ever like it wasn't ever like this is one of my favorite games of all time type of game for me so yeah i, I think i think the when persona 5 came out like there were, in the context of it, there were a lot of like novel things it did in terms of like presentation, UI, and like how they were managed to be able to like, um, you know, assign face buttons to actions in your intern-based battles. I mean, there there was a lot of like, a flair and flavor to Persona Five because there, a lot of its uh, things it was presenting was relatively novel at the time, and this one feels, uh, you know, I, I'm not here to shit on the game. Like I I want to play it for myself. And uh, you know, make my own opinion about it, but it it just feels like a lot more measured and and in some ways a bit phoned in, uh, from from what I've heard, like you know, uh, for for on more me measured takes, like who who knows, like where I'll come out at it, well, once I get my hands on it and find the time to play it. So thank you, Adam, <laughs> for your uh, take on Persona Five Royal. It is interesting just to be able to hear multiple views, and maybe maybe someday we'll be able to get a. Uh... Colin back in here, or 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 Josh, or I, I do have an inclination to play. Like I've played Persona Four Golden and loved it, uh, 
had I never really played the base game to really understand like the conversation about the additions made there. Like I can, I don't want to get off tangent, but uh, if I were to play Persona Five Royal, I would also have that same mindset where I don't have that direct. Here's what it was then, and here's what it is now. But I did enjoy Golden, so I, I am, I do want to play Royal. It's just. It's a big commitment. It's a big game. Yeah, I, I, I guess a little bit of backtracking because you did uh, mention that, and uh, you know, like th that's kind of the same way I feel about Soccer Wars, the new one coming up, which are like there will be two very different perspectives on it, um, depending on if people have had experience with the with the series or not. They have history with it. I'm very interested to see what newcomers uh, will will think about it, how they take to it. But like coming from me, like you know. Uh, someone who's played all the other mainline games, like I probably have a, a very different perspective on like how I've approached that game and what I've seen of that game. And not to state the obvious, but there's a very similar rhyming conversation with Final Fantasy VII Remake as well, those who have played the mm -hmm. original and though haven't. So and and, and, and even and even that, extending that even extending that out to like Resident Evil 3 remake or maybe the upcoming Trials yeah. of Mana, you know, it's like it's just it's just a, a running theme these days. For uh... that's what we get for just uh, remastering so many games. No, I, I, I yeah, and, and not, yeah, it's just and and not to like you know just reiterating to make sure that people aren't confused. This new Soccer Wars is a sequel. It's not an updated re-release of the old one like all the other games that that we mentioned. You know, this is. This is an actual yeah, new it's, release. It's new a parallel casting story conversation. Content. Yes. All right. So uh, I guess I'll chime in here now. And I'm not going to spend as much time on this game, mainly because I'm not inclined to talk about it too much. But I've been playing the update. Another too. hot. Yeah. Don't roll your hot. eyes. I've been, <laughs> I've been playing uh, Fallout 76. And I, I brought it up briefly in another Tetracast because I was saying, like, yeah, I'm just booting it up just to, in preparation for... Uh, they, uh, they released a new DLC update, Wastelanders, which was kind of like the... the it, was, it was supposed to be the high watermark of their, like, E3 presentation. Hell uh, yeah. 2018? Where basically, like, we have NPCs and then, like, the obnoxious Bethesda guy was like, woo, or whatever it was. Um, to, yeah. To, to cut to the chase, yes, it is a better game now than it okay. was then. But I still think it's, like, thoroughly mediocre. And I'm the sort of person where I am absolutely okay with dumping a lot of hours into mediocre games. I, I, don't, I don't just say, like, I'm not enjoying this. I'm going to put it down. Like, I feel this is going to sound incredibly hokey, but I like I feel like I need to play games that I don't gel with completely so that I do know, like, exactly what I value, what I don't when I play that really special game that it does actually mean something. And I'm not just have no no baseline for comparison. I'm with so you. I, though, I, I totally understand right? that. Yeah. Like one of those things where it's like if you just play like games are good then eventually it just kind of your standards get too high to a certain extent. <laughs> That's part of it. But it also just becomes sort of this thing where it's like you, you if you never play anything that you're adverse to, I think that you're going to try out fewer series. You're going to try out fewer genres. You're going to try out fewer like scopes of games. You might not be more inclined to try like double, you know, I, I know some people would say double A games don't exist, but that, that little, like that tier under triple A and above indie, whatever you want to call that space. 
I'm just um, curious, like how, like how people do the how, how people do things, how they design things, and I just like seeing seeing it for myself. It's just it more of a curiosity design, thing. It also helps me think about, like, for instance, one of the conversations about around Final Fantasy VII remake is the side quest design is boring or whatever. I'm like, well, what makes for a good side quest? Well, I don't think you can really know that until you play games that implement them in various ways and you think about what you really attach to and what you don't. So one of my one of my main criticisms of Fallout 76 that I voiced on an earlier podcast was that not anything to do with the performance or like the bugs or you know the stuff that you know YouTube videos love to clip out into their thumbnails, but just the fact that it was designed as a player-only world with no NPCs, all of the quests follow the same very banal format where it's just you're in, you're you're exploring an area after events have taken place to find a doodad or a thing or to retrieve an object and bring it back to a place like that's pretty much all it is you don't ever interact with characters you never have any sort of like narrative based framework behind any of the quests it's all just you find a hollow tape you know it's going to lead to a dead body or a person who's left the stage and it's just very boring and dull and like i thought okay wastelanders can uh improve on this because if you're introducing interactions with other you know written characters you can you can have a lot more variety in your quest design and there are a few specific narrow places where it does do that for instance there's this one quest where you're partnering with a young child uh and you're going through this um like this basement of a steel mill and the child will like go into air ducts to go on the other side of rooms and will like open doors for you and it's not implemented in maybe the greatest way, but it's like, hey, this is something different than just go here, kill all the monsters and fetch the thing. There's a little bit of, you know, give and take. And the child will say like, I'm hungry. Can you give me any food or whatever? And you like the, the game has like the survival mechanics where you have these food, this water and like like this resource management stuff. And it ties into like NPCs will ask for you to, 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 to lend them stim packs, the healing items or to lend them food items or whatever. So it, it also... Um, has this fun play with like the inventory system but then there's also these side quests which you'll have a character introduced in wastelanders who will come to your camp who then gives you a series of i'm not kidding like 15 quests which is all just please go to this location that i've marked on your map get the item and bring it back to me over 15 over quests of that over again. Oh, it's no. something like that. It's it's more than yeah. a dozen. And that that to me is just like you are absolutely squandering the potential here. This is exactly mm. what I criticize for the base game where it's just like go get this item, go fetch this thing. Literally like the most distilled, boiled down fetch quest. Like people just Are like, there any quests, like character arcs to these to these NPCs they've added? There's there's some um like so this character that you bring to your camp, like it's kind of like the prototypical Bethesda like companion character. Uh, mm -hmm. only they don't come with you so maybe i guess they're not prototypical uh they it's just like this uh, this is the backstory of my of my character i will i will elucidate more if you bring me this thing Ooh. i promise it will help ah. so you, go to, you, go, <laughs> you, you, you you go get this thing it's like it's usually some just sort of like doodad like i need a transmitter and or i need i need you to get something from my history a holotape or a paperwork or plans or medical records or this this piece of technology and it's just the same thing over and over again and maybe some people are really drawn to like the character writing and some of some of it is honestly a bit witty and i'll get to that maybe later but just the design of the quest i was so disappointed by it's just the same thing the game has always been. and that's that's a shame that's 
that's kind of the thing that I mentioned a few weeks ago with Vampire the Masquerade, just to bring it up briefly, just like that that game has like no quests that are like that, where it's just like go to this spot marked on the map and come back with this item. So and unfortunately, like, that's, 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 that's almost like that's almost like the, the that's, that's, that's like the, the, as bad a quest design as you could get almost. Jeez. And so some of the writing is admittedly kind of fun. Like for instance, there's this one character who's had their um like voice box completely mutilated, so they can't speak except they have like a talking almost like a dog collar that allows them to talk. So they talk like in this robot voice, but the robot voice doesn't allow them to swear. So it's oh, like, wow. it's, supposed okay. like this, it's supposed it's supposed to be like this raider character who's obviously very like you know gruff and uh, she's very like crass. Only her voice doesn't allow her to be. So there's just some funny like. Okay, that's know, cool. Whimsical moments where it's just like she she wants to, she wants to like say uh, you know shit and damn it and it's like poop, <laughs> and then like she wants to talk about like how she's an explosives expert but she can only ever say big boom. You might think oh, that's like <laughs> juvenile humor, but it's it's just kind of funny. Where I don't know, I, I legitimately I didn't like I'm I'm going to give this game a fair shake and say like all right, I enjoyed okay. this. This was fun, but they also the questing. Uh... Go ahead. They they also revamped like the beginning of that game, right? Like to incorporate the NBCs, like the tutorials, like NBCs give you tutorials now, like how you like, hey, go build this thing and you're actually they're actually yeah, more integral so, to the structure of that game now. So that is one thing I do want to give them a little bit of props for. It's not like you play through NBC Baron base game and then you get to part two where they show up. They've they've overlapped it. Where if there's a little bit of an incongruency if you're already experienced to have one of the first NPCs telling you this is how you build stuff at your camp, but it's just kind of like okay, it comes with the territory. They're trying to patch this up, and I think for new players, it will be a better experience. So even if you're level 300 and you already know exactly how to build your camp, and having this you know no name person telling you this is how you do this, it might feel a little weird, but you can kind of get it. But I don't know. So the long story short is that it is. It is a better game, but I think it's just kind of thoroughly mediocre still. Um, a lot of people have been saying like it's better than Fallout 4 at least, because Fallout 4 is where they really dialed back the dialogue into like these almost meaningless choices, where you have like these little two-word prompts that don't involve your skills, don't involve any like RPGness at all, and. Fallout 76 does actually say like if your charisma's high enough, you can select this option. If your strength's high enough, you can select this option. Uh, so it's a little better, but it's I think it's kind of like the bare minimum. There's a lot of do you, do, do you think there's places. at least a good foundation now for them to improve though? Do you think they'll actually like expand upon this and try to really go at like, hey, we can make this like into something really worthwhile for people now? I do think it's there, but I think some of the receptions seems to be jumping the gun. They, they did like I saw someone I forget if it was on Twitter or whatever like they did it the Mad Lads fixed it and I don't really see it like that I'm like all right they set they fixed their platform they fixed the foundation they've got the floor in place like that's how I'm seeing it like okay they've got something like the, this should this should have been now. what they launched with like the the state of the game right yes, now should have been exactly what they because now they could actually say like all right we're going to extend what this character was you know their their story arc or this or this region of the world where now they have that in place to do that they don't have to overhaul it again but i don't think they're there yet cuz it's it, first of all it's it's a bit hard to judge exactly like so normally in a game like this if i see like okay i can use my strength stat to to threaten or intimidate this character 
what do I what do I gain or what do I lose by selecting that versus not selecting that? One thing that is kind of interesting is that this game is obviously an online game. You can't just make a save point before a dialogue and reload it. You know, if you threaten someone, you have to live with whatever the consequence is. So that is one thing I actually thought was kind of interesting. You can't, there's no take backs. You can't say, oh crap, I didn't go the way I wanted. I want to go back to the, to, to the nonviolent option or whatever. But it feels like without being able to thoroughly test, it does feel like that a lot of the dialogue options are kind of like trivial or pointless. Like even if you don't have your intelligence stat high enough to do this certain mechanical thing in the game, there's always going to be a way around it. Like some other character will just do it for you. Like it feels like there's almost no meaning behind it. It's almost just there uh -huh. to have the skill check just to say, hey, we have skill checks now. Um, but it's hard to judge fully because I can't select one and then reload and select the other and see how disparate they truly are. It just doesn't feel like it's very disparate. I never really felt like I was at a disadvantage. Like my character is very like high strength, high endurance, low intelligence, low charisma. And I never really felt like I was at a way where I had to like, I, like I felt the repercussion of being built that way. If I never had it, enough charisma to do something, usually there was an easy and obvious workaround. Do you think they're scared to do that though? Like because the, in the, some way choices are permanent now uh, with that character, yeah. so they they, they don't want to they don't want to like make players feel like they're being left out permanently because they were That's failing a, a stat check. I will say one of the benefits of it, though, is that so the game always had this like Fallout has a system of like drugs and, you know, eight items, which will buff your strength, buff your damage at the cost of becoming addicted or whatever. And one thing that I have found that is a lot more useful now is there's items like Mentats or like, you know, alcohol, which will increase your charisma mm -hmm. at, a, at a penalty to perception or increase your intelligence at a loss of strength or whatever. And before the game with this, the way the game was set up before is that was almost meaningless. Like, oh, if I increase my intelligence, that will make my energy weapons do slightly more damage. Or if I increase my charisma, that'll make my sale price of items slightly higher. It was very, like, ticky-tack stuff. Where now it's, oh, if I talk to this person, I might want to pop a, a charisma-boosting item just in case there's a, a dialogue option that requires it. So I actually found myself, like, having a degree of resource management, making sure to have that on hand. Where before it was pointless and trivial to keep track of what drugs you had in terms of those stats, now it actually becomes meaningful somewhat. I don't think it goes far enough, but it it was it was a glimmer of that sort of thing where it's like, all right, they've got the system that you know at play here. They've got something going. We're still on the ramp up, but it's I can see the potential at play now, where before it was super far off in the distance, absorbed so, uh, by all the jank. I don't know if you'd know this, uh, but is there like an end game state to this? Like, is there like a finite thing you can do to NPCs? Like, okay, I've talked to the NPCs, I talked to all of them, and I've done everything they did that they asked for. Is there so? At some point, this NPC stuff becomes meaningless because you've done everything. Or are they? Or does it do it like Skyrim style, where there's always gonna be randomized quests that come from them forever? It's a little bit of both. So the base game's end game was basically twofold first of all there are like daily quests so kind of like the skyrim okay. style radiant stuff and that's just kind of to have a, a constant resource flow if you need if you want to get some caps without just pure farming items and selling them you can just do a slew of a daily quest and get some caps get some stim packs get some items and i think that's fine just any online game is usually going to have some sort of daily system it's it is what it is it's something to do 
uh, if, in the absence of anything else. Then the base game also had this end game with the missile silos. You launch a, you launch a nuke, which you can talk about how the framing of that within Fallout is really kind of dumb, but whatever. As a pure gameplay mechanic, you launch a nuke, you fight some high, higher level monsters, you get some like rare drops, etc. You repeat. Um, they did introduce like these raids, which were like you go into a vault with three other players, kind of similar. It was basically like a dungeon. But apparently they were balanced super poorly, and they've actually kind of like gone back to the drawing board on that. Uh, I forget when it was implemented, but there was like Vault 94 raids, and now they've like tabled those because they play, people weren't playing them because they were huge resource hogs. You had to go in with like a million bullets and a thousand stim packs in order to make it through, and it was just wasn't fun. Didn't have good feedback. So in in Wastelanders, what they've done is. Uh, once you complete the main storyline, you get a new currency. Basically, before you have bottle caps, right? That's the fallout currency. But now you've yeah. got gold bullion, like gold bars. And basically, if you can do little daily repeatable quests for, for the factions, there's really only two bespoke factions, which is another disappointing thing. And it's kind of like the most obvious splitting you could possibly do. There's no nuance to it. There's the settlers. They're the people who are like kind and like just want to create new lives for themselves. And they're the raiders who are want to just, you know, they're self-centered and they want to just exploit, you know, the situation for their own personal gain. It's like, all right, that's kind of like the bare minimum. There's no like really nuanced belief system behind either sect. And you want you can do you can like increase your reputation with them by doing daily tasks. And then once you do that, you can trade with them this gold resource. To get new new items, new weapons, new new armor types, um, and that's kind of it for the for the new end game. The missile strikes are still there. The vault raids might come back in a new form, but now it's just kind of like working, doing these kind of repeatable events to get new items from these vendors. Which I haven't really looked long and hard enough to say like is the for instance is the power armor you can get from the settlers better than the stuff currently available like clearly so it's like a new tier i don't really know um i'm not really like that interested in like really grinding out being going on that treadmill i might i might dabble around in it but it's it's not that i'm not that enthusiastic about it i guess Mm. oh it's good to hear yeah yeah it's it's i think of that stupid comic with like with the doodle jumping it's something it is something. It's it's better than it was. Uh, I know that's a low bar, and people might be rolling their eyes. But... That's, that's fine. No, no I, I I totally get where you're coming from. It's like it like it. It's one of those things like you you know there are problems with it, but you still can't help but like have some sort of like like a soft heart for it because you you know that there's something to it. And you have to have the right mindset if you're the sort of person if you're gonna go in and see a person clipping through their bed as they're sleeping. <laughs> and that's immediately going to turn you off. Like, don't play this. Just don't. Like, you have to be like, mm. all right, this game is going to be slathered in jank. It just will be. Um, and if you're someone that looks for, like, a really polished to a sheen, super well, like, roadmapped experience, that's not this. This is more kind of, it's almost kind of like a set of tools, like a set, like a framework, like, for interacting as, as a player you go in you have this story that's kind of like lo- loosely given to you but i think most of the the fun that you can extract from it is kind of like this emergent gameplay in terms of you know if you're if you're in if you're in a certain location and you're being attacked by super mutants and you and you're able to like push one off the side of a building into like a you know a rack uh 
you know, a group of feral ghouls below. Like that, it's it's sort of like involves in like it's that emergent non deliberately written storytelling where I think this game can have like a lot of like interesting storytelling behind it. But in terms of like a front to finish narrative experience, this game's not that. It's cool. It's not better. It's not better than Fallout 4. And it's not better than Fallout 3. And it's not better than Fallout New Vegas. If you've <laughs> already played all those. Fallout 1 and 2. <laughs> that I want to play those at some point. I haven't. I know. I'm a I'm a I'm a normie or whatever you want to call it. But uh, no, okay. if, if you've already if if you've already played all the other Fallout's and you're itching for more, this game, it's okay. It's all right. It's it's. I'm saying this next word in italics. It's fine. It's it's there. I hear they're here. They're making a new Fallout shelter with Gotcha. So, oh God, there you go. All right, that's One enough. That's Fallout. enough Fallout seventy six. It's it's fine. <laughs> All right, so the last person we haven't talked to yet is James on Final Fantasy fourteen. You talked a little bit about going to Heaven Sword last week. I don't know if you really had a lot more to say about it. I'll just kind of leave it up to you to the extent you want to talk about your experience going to um, Heaven Sword. I'd say that... Um, so going to Heaven Sword, I wasn't really expecting that drastic of a difference in the scope of the environments, mostly because I knew that Heaven Sword was still playable on PS3, and I kind of expected more of a jump in the scope and the scale for these areas to happen with Stormblood because that's when they dropped PS3 support. But I was actually pretty shocked at how much larger and open the areas are in Heaven's War, like, straight from the get-go. Like, in base game Final Fantasy XIV, the areas are pretty small and constricted, lots of loading zones. And uh, I wouldn't say they were bad. They were fine. But you could definitely tell that it was a game that was designed with certain limitations in mind. And I think I talked about how the story was off to a better start last week. But uh, long story short, people weren't overselling how much better the story was, I feel like. It's definitely a lot better paced. It definitely has more interesting story beats. The set pieces are... are much more consistently what's the best way to put it if base game around reborn was kind of overly cautious because they were developing it while at the same time developing updates for the original final fantasy 14 then you can definitely see with heaven's word that they had the full backing of the team behind it and they were a lot more confident in what they were doing I, it really shows like um the story beats that they kind of built up through the end of the aroma patches are brought forward into heaven's work some of them resolve some being pushed um even further back obviously and overall the story is really good the new areas are a lot more interesting like the um the uh, floating aisles i forget the exact name because there's like a several areas with floating islands. Like there's the uh, Gervanian uh, hinterlands, which are float floating islands that are like filled with uh, dragons. It's very like rocky, craggy, almost mountainous look. And then there's uh, this earlier one you go to, where there's one of the etheric crystals you uh, teleport to is like called Cloudtop. 
and that one's more akin to something like you'd see in like uh what's the best way um maybe uh what's that one sega jrpg that was on cube uh as you start online Skies of Arcadia? Skies of Arcadia, yeah, like the more greenery, like the, uh, oh, okay. that sort of uh, Sky Island trope. Not, sorry, I'm a bit tired. Um, but yeah, I was kind of expecting there to not be that much of a, uh, not, that, not that much variety in the environments, because the whole thing with Heaven's Word is, oh, you're going to Ishgard, which is perpetual snow because of the calamity and whatnot. But surprisingly enough, there's only like one new area that's snow, and even that area is is sufficiently different from the other um, snowy area in the base game. And then everything else is pretty much completely unique. So that was really, really cool to see. Um, the new dungeons are pretty good. I haven't done most of the level 60 ones. I definitely noticed that um, the vast majority of the Heavensward dungeons were ones that you unlock after the story. And, like, there's only, like, three trials you do in Heaven's Word's story, and then, like, three dungeons? Maybe four? Yeah, four, I think. So it's, like, obviously the expansion is going to be smaller than the base game, but I feel like that it's a... It was still plenty big, and especially once you get to the end, a bunch of endgame content. I And it... You can tell that they wanted to expand the scope of the endgame of Heaven's Word because right from the get-go, there are a much larger variety of activities available to you once you reach the endgame. And there's much more of an emphasis put on the, even like the eight-man raid. Like the eight-man raid in A Realm Reborn, I haven't done it yet, and I haven't done the Heaven's Word either, but... In A Realm Reborn, it doesn't really push you towards it, and it's very easy to miss that eight-man raid because the game doesn't really make a big deal about it. Whereas with Heavensward, as soon as you finish the main story and like after the credits roll, you basically get a cutscene that sh- that really says, "Hey, there's something happening over there. You should check it out," and it ba- it railroads you into that eight-man raid content, whereas in the realm so before reborn. it kind of treated the raid as like parallel to the to the to the progression where now it's like it's on the end it's part of the main through line of well it's still it's still parallel but it makes an effort to say hey this is happening too if you want to check it out which is pretty nice it's actually so interesting if you're a though, solo cause... player sorry um i'm just thinking if you're a solo player and you basically have kind of written off like i'm never going to do the raids just because <clears> i don't i don't have like, you, I know some people who are Final Fantasy fourteen veterans might say, like, oh, you can always matchmake for them or whatever. I don't know. I don't have the foundation. But if you kind of decide early on that you just don't have the time or inclination to play the raids, the story is a complete story without them, right? They're kind of like side stories or like spin-off sort of things. I uh, um, not, no, not, I quite. <laughs> not quite. Uh, so I haven't done the um, Realm Reborn eight-man raids yet. But from what I understand, they're essentially... They tie up the loose ends that were kind of introduced with the transition from 0.0 story to the 2.0 story. So, like, 
this isn't a spoiler because it's literally the plot synopsis of Realm Reborn, but essentially the way Realm Reborn happens is there's a huge calamity because what was originally thought to be Eorzea's second moon, or I mean Heidelin's second moon, was actually a technological prison that was holding um, Bahamut. And when he was uh, released, he he essentially rabbit, um, ravaged the land, and one of the main characters from one point, Louis does something, and somehow he go, he disappears as well as Bahamut. And originally, it wasn't really explained how Bahamut disappeared, what actually happened there, because it was very vague with and cutscene. And the raid series kind of goes into detail to what happened there and exactly what led to Realm Reborn even being possible. Because if Bahamut hadn't disappeared, then the uh, adventurers wouldn't be around to continue adventuring. Thank you, Bahamut. Um, and more importantly, and this actually just came out like today, but the Alliance raid for Realm Reborn, the Crystal Tower series, which is, and the, the difference between the regular raids and Alliance raids, the Alliance raids are 24 person. They're generally a bit easier and it's more for the spectacle of it. Um, whereas the eight person raids are more heavily coordinated and they have tougher mechanics. Well, the Alliance raid for Crystal Tower series is going to be required going forward for Shadowbringers. And we don't know specifically where when it will be required. It might just be for the upcoming patch or it could be they're just going to make it so that before you start um, Shadowbringers at all you need to do the Crystal Tower raids. And there is a story reason for that and I haven't gotten to Shadowbringers so I can't say the specific the specifics but just going by the opening cutscene or the um the uh pre-rendered opening for shadowbringers it's very clear that the crystal tower plays a very specific role in shadowbringers so the story that's told in that raid is directly tying into the main storyline for the latest expansion so no side stories here yeah, and two of us are I do think kind of I have. Mentioned. Sorry, I was just gonna say I do have like a Heaven Sword one hundred and one question. So, is there anything that so Heaven Sword was the first like real paid expansion for Final Fantasy fourteen, right? Because Realm Reborn was a repackaging. Yeah, was, yeah. Uh, so, is there any like major gameplay component that's locked behind Heaven Sword beyond just? new tiers of gear like is there anything a heaven's sword player can do that a base game player simply doesn't have access to whether like it's a certain craft or a certain traversal I mode i think is it... they have air uh, traversal mode yeah that you can fly and that's specifically in the heaven's Ward. and i'm not sure if you can fly in later zones like in stormblood and shadowbringers heaven's Ward, you can fly and the way it works actually is that you um, get the ability to fly on a zone for zone basis, and you need to. And there's kind of a bit of a puzzle aspect to it. 
not really a puzzle aspect to it, but an exploration aspect to it, where you need to find ether currents on the map, as well as get uh, some from completing about this quests. On, uh, yeah, yeah about I think I talked about this. And I, guess, I guess I guess I guess I just didn't compartmentalize it. That was like a pure Heaven Sword edition that basically yeah. players don't get. Basically, what did I was they thinking add, did they add a Bahamut mount yet? Hmm? Did they add a Bahamut mount yet? Can I? I, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> oh man. What I was wondering, um, the reason why I asked that question is because I was just wondering, like, if you're playing the game and you see someone doing something, and you're like, "Oh wow, I, I can't wait till I can do that." You know, I know that's very general oh, or vague, but like in this case, it's flying, that's right. Like... There's also specific classes that you can't unlock until you get to Heavensward's content, and you own obviously you own the expansion, right? Um. The other thing I wanted to mention, though, kind of a, a side note to the whole like story content from Raid directly tying into the story, but that's one of the things I'm starting to notice about Final Fantasy XIV is that nothing is really off the table to become relevant to the main plotline later. Uh, one thing that comes to mind is that my original class that I chose was Lancer, and I eventually went on to unlock the Dragoon job, which is the extension of it. and one of the characters in the specific job class, um, job class quest, well, bleh, job class, job quest for Dragoon is the Azur Dragoon uh, Istinian. And in base game, you directly interact with him in these side quests and nowhere else. So if you never touched the Dragoon class in base game, you would never meet him. Oh, that's really but, cool. I but he, he plays a central role in the expansion. And, he, and in fact, if you've completed the job quest for Dragoon, he has special dialogue in some scene directly referencing that fact. Oh, I, I'm, I'm just grinning right now because I actually love this. I imagine like one player who's playing something completely different, White Mage or whatever, and they're like, oh, this, this Dragoon character seems neat, important. You know, he plays a role here. But then if you're a Lancer, you're like, oh, it's this guy. I trained under him. You know, I spent hours with this guy earlier. And he, like, he not only yeah. that, but the game winks back at you and says, yeah, we know. And we're going to give you this extra dialogue because of it. I just think that's so cool. I wish more games did something Yeah, like it's that. not even just, like, a one-time thing. It's, like, a few times. It's, like, sprinkled here and there throughout it. Um, it's not a huge spoiler, so I'll just mention it. But part of the Dragoon job class's quest, yeah, I said it again, job quests, um, yeah, part of the Dragoon's job quest is that you eventually become the new Azura Dragoon yourself. And so when he would uh, originally, like, usually he would introduce himself as the Azura Dragoon, but if you've already done that, he'll say, I would say I'm the Azura Dragoon, but the real one's standing right before us. And then, like, later on, like, he'll say, well, I'm pretty sure with two Azure Dragoons on the case, we'll be, able, we'll be fine and stuff like that. Like, where he would normally just say Warrior of Light or something like that. That's, I, I, I'm a broken record, but I just think that's super neat. We're talking about, like, yeah. bad, poor quest design or, you know, having choices in dialogue that don't end up mattering. It's like, well, here's something that ends up mattering, even if you never expected that it would. It's just really cool. yeah i absolutely love it and it's part of the reason why like it, it makes me want to play more class because it's like is there going to be more of this stuff like going forward 
Like, I just don't know. Like, they've done it before. It only makes sense they might do it again. Like, will I get unique? Like, for example, when Shadowbringers, like, the kind of poster class is Dark Knight, which was actually introduced in Heaven's Word, but I, I don't know. Is there going to be specific, like, dialogue if I'm actually playing as a Dark Knight in Shadowbringers? I don't know, but I really want to find out. And based on what you said, it's probably... Yeah. So, do yeah. you think you're going to be heading into Stormblood soon? I don't know, like how far away you are in well, terms of like stuff you got. I need to do the. Yeah, I need to. I need to do the post heaven heaven's work patches, and I'm not going to rush. Like, even though I've been, it it might look well, like I've been rushing through um, FF14. Really, I haven't. I've been taking my time, kind of absorbing. I was like absorbing the realm of post-game content for a bit like doing a bunch of the dungeons like i did the crystal tower raid series now it's going to be mandatory for some Shadowbringers content i've been looking like i've been kind of like feeling it out like how i'd be able to find a group to do the bahamut raids in the base game because i again was told that there's some story content there and i do want to at least try out some uh harder content um i've been helping some uh, friends of mine go through game like i leveled up a tank class um right now i'm leveling up a healing class so i've been having a lot of fun and taking time it's just like i feel like plenty of people can understand that there's really not much else to do right now and uh if we're it's stuck at home anyways to get an yeah you heard it here exactly exactly um also helps it's a good distraction from everything so yeah yeah but yeah i've been playing more ff14 hopefully i'll have some of our game to talk about next week though it's likely it's gonna be uh if it's not for final fantasy 14 it'll be like more xenoblade cross or maybe fantasy star online too so yeah we'll talk about it a little bit that uh launched on xbox uh this week i guess here's thank you for laying up my uh, segue james so in terms of the topics section, as we round out the back half of this cast, uh, a lot of the stuff that was announced in the last seven days is just kind of like bit news, little, you know, a trailer here, a gameplay snippet there. But there are a few interesting nuggets nested within that. Uh, first of all, I do want to shout out for our website on RPGsite.net. We do obviously have the Sakura Wars reflection kind of slash preview that Josh put up. It's more about the series as a whole, Sakura Wars linking the past to the present. And then also, we haven't mentioned it yet, but uh, one of our contributors, uh, Kite Steinbuck, did an import review for Persona 5 Scramble, which is the Koei Tecmo Muzo-like spinoff to Persona 5. So in, the, in an era where now Persona 5 Royal exists, it's kind of an interesting read-through talking about how this game, which has not been announced for localization yet, as far as I know, how it lies kind of outside of everything that Royal introduces and this is the game that had that trailer that kind of cheekily in the artwork put out like a P5-2. I don't know if you remember that. Um, it's kind of a unlabeled sequel to the base game. So it's an interesting read. We got an import review for Persona 5 Scramble up on the site. Uh, I guess I'm going to jump around in the order that we've got laid out here a bit. Um, this is something that we were kind of expecting with all the dialogue over the last month, month and a half. But we had three more quote-unquote casualties for COVID-19 gaming-related events. 
So in the last seven days, Gamescom, San Diego Comic-Con, and finally Anime Expo have all laid down their cards. They're all canceling any sort of in-person convention for this year. I don't know yeah, if we've got uh... any further... I mean, it, it's it's to be expected, right? I mean, it'd be it'd be right, like socially irresponsible to to hold off any big gatherings for the rest of this year. Uh, this pandemic has like spread in a way that's like you know it, it's uncontrollable right now, uh, and everyone's trying to do their best to you know mitigate its effects, trying to uh, you know implement social distancing, implement you know uh, other uh, shutdowns and whatnot. It would be just unfathomable, uh, or just unfathomable to hold these large gathering events i I imagine like you know for any remaining cons that haven't outright you know uh announced that they're being postponed or canceled for this year and whatnot uh you know i a lot of it is behind the scenes of like trying to wait for official word from the the local governments uh to you know kind of use that as a as a way to get out of their uh, clause, uh, insurance clauses to make sure that they have a fail safe that they don't incur like the the full financial hit uh, if they were to cancel on their own because it, the, normally if they were to uh, uh, prematurely cancel on their own without without any sort of backing from the from higher ups uh, you know they would incur a huge 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 econo- economical financial loss based on the terms of their contract yeah you know, for insurance. And whatnot. So, at least for the as far as um, Anime Expo is concerned, it's uh, always takes place in Los Angeles Convention Center. Um, just you know, a few days ago, um, the L.A. government governor was saying it would be very difficult uh, to see any large gatherings in L.A. for the remainder of the year. You know, and I I wonder if that was like the push that they needed the official word that they needed to finally use that to say hey they we finally got word from the government that we can no longer hold this event and now they have uh, a way to slip out of their uh, insurance uh, so they don't incur the full financial loss if they were to announce this earlier than they did now uh, yeah, once it's once it's written down like I don't exactly know what California has, but like a state says you can't have gatherings greater than 15 people. Well, there you go. That You've just made enemy yeah, so expo. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to gather 90,000 people this year in, in like the same 50, city. Rooms yeah, of 15 yeah, yeah. or only. Yeah. Yeah. And the convention space and whatnot. This, you know, it's, it sucks, but it you know this this is what has to be done to, you know to to push through this. This is this is what it takes. The, the, whether people like it or not, this is mother nature. You can't there's you can't. It's not something you can like combat, you know, directly. You don't want to turn the L.A. Convention Center into just like a petri dish. Exactly. So. Yeah. So we before the podcast, we were kind of like musing, like what do we have still slated for this year? Because, you know, we have events as far out as August and September now shutting down, like Gamescom. And I think the next one, the next major one is, we talked about Final Fantasy XIV Fan Fest, scheduled for November. And it's like, well, I can sort of Tokyo see, obviously, the further well out. There. Has that, have they said Tokyo anything Ga- yet? No, that's still on for 
September, I believe, late September. It's right. November. Oh, is Tokyo Game Show Game Show November now? Wait, um, didn't uh, Brian say Fan Fest like Final Fantasy XIV? Well, we, we were we were straddling the two. We we're talking about both those things being later in the year. Um, and I guess neither neither Tokyo Game Show or Final Fantasy XIV Fan Fest. Tokyo Game Show is usually in September. Yeah. Yeah. So, as so you know, it's kind of that sixth month lead up time, or maybe not six months, maybe more like five. It's kind of where we see like starting in May or June, if things aren't clearly on the downswing, that's when we're going to start to see. And, and, and even then, like uh, even with delays and postponement postponements, like they're they're not they're not free from like you know being just outright canceled. Like Taipei Game Show, one of the earliest that was supposed to be um held on this year like i think it's around mid-february i believe and they were one of the very first ones from the get-go saying hey we can't have type a type a game show go on right now especially when the uh, um pandemic was still in china um they they tried to postpone it back to like may and then like they're like saying no it just canceled outright for the rest of this year you know so e- even if the, even if like there's a, a an event to be postponed at a later time this year i just do not see any sort of public gathering, especially convention conventions, for the rest of this year at bare minimum. Yeah, so yeah, and, and, come, they did, they did like the, I don't remember the wording, but they did as as the ESA did. They mentioned like how they'll have digital event, but we know that's not always ironclad because ESA ended up backing out of having a digital event. I think it's just like yeah for E3, yeah. and then mm-hmm. so we'll see if that actually happens or if it does or what under what format or if they'll partner. Like obviously we saw. It's a bunch of studios partner with IGN a couple of weeks ago. We talked about that, and we'll see if any if any other similar source of I don't know what you, I don't know you call that avenues for for holding the event in some digital format kind of crop up as people kind of it's a little, it's a bit ad hoc. It's just kind of like what can we slap together? Isn't quite the right connotation, but what what can we quickly ramp up that's suitable as a as a digital replacement? There's this big events. milestone too for a lot of these events. Like I know I think. Both San Diego Comic Con and Anime Expo. This is the first time ever they've had to cancel, right? Their convention. I don't know about Gamescom. I'm not entirely too sure about that, but at least I know for the, those two, though, these are just like big milestones. Like this is when we had to like not hold a show this year at all. So outside of specific gaming related events, another thing that cropped up this week via Bloomberg is a few details about and we've mused about this earlier in earlier casts about releasing new consoles in this environment so takashi mochizuki who i know as a writer for the wall street journal covering you know japan business news uh contributed to an article from bloomberg talking about the ps5 and how sony is planning to very highly limit availability of the console this year and if you give this a read it's some of it is related to uh, the current economic environment, but some of it's also just related to the the device itself as being having a loftier price tag. They 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 cite a few like business analysts believing that the console, the PS5, is going to be between five hundred and five hundred fifty dollars. So they anticipate that the quantity demanded is going to be lower. So it sounds like even more so than the PS4, PS3, the PS5 is going to be hard to come by on day one. For now, kind of a multitude of converging reasons based on high price tag, limited supply. Obviously, we don't know where the virus is going to be at in terms of impacting our daily lives come you know, holiday season. I mean, 
I mean, even <laughs> if the virus disappeared tomorrow, the economic from just what's happened so far is going to be felt for years. So, like, oh, yeah, for sure. Like, I Did... mean, what's the unemployment looking at right now? Like, something like it's over 10%. That's for sure. I think it's like, God. I don't even want to. Talk. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's, I, it's that's not a great. It's it's not great. Like you know, the, uh, of course, uh, unemployment is still uh, rising and rising, and it's not like it, it, even as you said, even if the virus is to uh, disappear tomorrow, it's still it, it would still take far longer to recover from it, just on multiple sectors uh, of the economy and whatnot. And you know that it it'll take time, but just to put hard numbers on like what they're expecting on the shortages, like. Um, the Bloomberg article does uh, say they uh, support Sony reportedly plans to uh, make five to six million units of PlayStation PlayStation Five uh, within the fiscal year, which ends uh, in March 2021. And to put that those numbers into perspective, with the PlayStation Four, uh, they sold 7.5 million units within their first two quarters. So it's a substantial. Uh, Step setback yeah from that and it makes sense i mean it, it, it's it's tough all around you know and also you're trying to as james was pointing out earlier like it's going to be hard to sell these units especially we you know with uh, unemployment on the rise just even in one in one country alone there's not even taking into account the whole international situation where everyone is hurting you know it's also so, that the virus has kind of upended supply chains. Like the, the Bloomberg yep. article also talks about how Sony engineers, these, you know, these consoles are manufactured largely in China, which has obviously already seen the brunt of the virus. And they're, they're not allowed seemingly to travel to, you know, to work on getting the supply built up or getting the final design. I, obviously, I don't know what stage of the process they're at, but they, they can no longer have the, those sorts of business interactions to to ramp up for a console release, which obviously is going to have huge, you know, setbacks in terms of what they're able to supply come holiday. So I think it's kind of expected. And this just kind of puts a lot of the, a lot of the reasoning that we kind of speculated on in, in more concrete terms. And it's going to be difficult to get your hands on a PS5 this year. And even if you do, it sounds like it's going to be pretty, pretty even though nothing has been officially announced from either Sony side or Xbox side, these, these consoles are going to be expensive. And we kind of lean that based on the capabilities of each that we're aware of. Yeah, and I think... I, uh, the, I really am curious just how hard it's actually going to be. Because even if the supply is constrained, I really, I really don't know how much demand there's going to be with how the economy is going to be when things release. And I guess, like, you know, just to offset it the, as well, I mean... Both Sony and Microsoft are going to do this because this only makes sense uh, with the numbers. As, uh, as these new boxes release, they're probably going to slash the prices of current-gen consoles uh, to try to get more people to not only buy them, but also get them into Xbox Game Pass or PlayStation PlayStation Plus. You know, because a lot of this, a lot of things moving forward, even if, the, even if this uh, current situation didn't happen, a lot of things moving forward will be uh, service focused. They're they're expecting that um, to offset the high cost. They're re they're relying on the current services now, current subscription programs now to offset a lot of the cost of, of the pricey boxes. Especially with like some of the, it doesn't quite line up perfectly because I don't think there's a I don't think the population of people who's going to buy a, a price cut Xbox One X 
for, for Cyberpunk are then going to immediately turn around and buy an Xbox Series X. But in general, the idea that getting them into the ecosystem and, hey, if it's not going to be a Series X or a PS5, we're still going to offer these devices, which are plentiful and available because they've already been established. There's obviously the motivation to get people in and then kind of holding that carrot over them saying, hey, the PS5, it's here. It's... It's, people will want the new thing. People purchases. want. People yeah. always want the new shiny thing, right? And uh, I think, uh, hopefully, I mean, you know, ho hopefully, the people who do get uh, their hands on a PS5 or Xbox Series X, like, are truly like you know, in a in a, in a situation they were they were able to like, um, withstand the cost without without having to sacrifice you know other things in their life to to, to obtain that. You know, everyone's financial situation is different. So you know you can only hope for the best that people are making the most out of what the the cards that they were dealt. It does make you wonder yeah. though if we're going to see a window where no truly exclusive game like we kind of saw this a little bit with PS4, where when it launched it had a few exclusives. I believe it had the Killzone, uh, Shadowfall. Yes. It had like the Rezo gun. But then in my mind, anyways, in my opinion, the big first. PS4, Sony, you bought a console for this game was Infinite Second Son, which I think was like March after it was a few months later. And I wonder if we're going to see the same sort of thing where the console's release in a given window, but then you'll start to see the big software push for it just come lagging up behind it just a bit. I, I was actually I wonder, expecting you to say Bloodborne on that because I, for many people, a uh, lot of people held off on PS4 till Bloodborne in my memory. Yeah, I think Bloodborne was a little after Second Son. Yeah, it, it was. It was. Yeah, it was a little after for sure. But people held off till Bloodborne in my in my memory. Because like, because obviously we kind of expect like on the Xbox side that they'll launch alongside Halo, but Halo will be playable on Xbox One X. So it's kind of yeah. yeah a lot of situation. Microsoft's situation is weird. Yeah, because Sony, I, I imagine Sony's uh, strategy isn't for like PlayStation Five exclusives or PlayStation Five developed games to be playable on PS4. Meanwhile, Microsoft is going to allow, last time we heard, I think, um, two to three years, I think, somewhere along that, yeah. that line of like Xbox Series X developed games will still be able to be run on Xbox One. Yeah, I'm guessing Sony will come out swinging with more clear-cut exclusives just because that's kind of the precedent that's been set for years now. But I'm, I'm also guessing that they're not going to sh all show up, or maybe one of them will show up along with the console. I'm guessing a few of them will lag behind. That's, we'll see if we'll see if that's true or not. But uh, yeah, it's also going to be weird because you still, the, yeah, you still you still have the backwards compatibility thing. Like, say, uh, like yep. they they make a PS5 version of FF7 remake. Like, what does that look like? You know, will they actually add an additional price tag on that? Like, if you want the up, upgraded version with, you know, maybe. PS5 version with faster loading textures. Yeah, right. There you go. Finally, the definitive edition. The cover is just a door. Yeah, just a doorknob. I love that. Oh man, that'd be amazing. Yeah, I mean that's a lot of this. A very up in the air. Who fucking knows, man? All right. So, um, the rest of the news that we have listed for this week is. We got a couple of little gameplay snippets of the new fairy tale RPG showing like non playable characters. We've gotten a few a gameplay trailer for uh, one of the Utawaro Muno games. I don't know if James has any comments. Um, on that. I've been, yeah, just a small comment, uh, commentary. Um, 
so I've been keeping a close eye on all of NIS America's like news trials for this game, especially since, um, doubly so since they announced Cold Steel 4, because my thought was like when I was assuming that Cold Steel 4 was maybe going to be next year, that would leave a large enough gap between the mountains of work that would have to be done on Cold Steel 3 and the mountains of work for Cold Steel 4 where they could slot in the localization effort for Utuari Mono, get the time they would deserve. And I'm not saying that it's not going to get it, but I've been worried about it because of NIS America's track record. And so far, all they've shown of um, Utuari Mono, they haven't shown any of the dialogue. Like, the previous trailer before this one that they showed, they had subtitles for the the um, the special attacks, but that was pretty much it. And for this one, they didn't show any of the visual novel sections whatsoever, even though that's the main reason you're going to be playing Utawaru Mono is for the visual novel story. While there is tactical RPG gameplay, it's a supplement to the visual novel not the other way around another series very influenced by soccer wars yeah yeah um so it's it's kind of concerning that we're supposedly like a month away from launch and they haven't shown any screenshots of the actual translation for the actual visual novel aspects so like at this point assuming that there's not a last minute delay that's happening which it could happen we don't know well uh yeah i mean Assuming they should have, like, the game finished and gold for the PS4 discs. Like, they need to send it out to basically start being printed, like, now, pretty much. We haven't seen anything of the actual translation besides, like, battle text, which is, I'd assume, some of the easiest stuff to translate and the least amount of text in the game. So I'm, I'm getting kind of worried. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that I'm just thinking too uh too hard on this but i guess we'll fit we'll find out soon when when's this game slated to launch uh may all right so that's what so yeah we're right at that window where we hope we see some of the translation effort uh soonish we haven't yet yeah for okay yeah A few other bits and pieces of news. We did get, uh, we talked about this two weeks ago when we had our big near focus podcast, how as kind of a footnote to the announcement of the remaster slash remake of Near Replicant, they did also announce a new mobile project, Near Reincarnation, which we got our first gameplay video of this week. Now, I hope I don't come across like a near neophyte and there's supposed to be like a bunch of like super recognizable imagery, but it's just a little like a minute and a half of a, of a young girl being followed by something that looks like a ghost going to like an old ruin. It's kind of, oh, it's Brian, just you're missing like, everything. Oh, oh my uh, God. You didn't see all the, all the fucking symbolism and all the direct references to that one stage play a, they held. I can't <laughs> believe it's not a gotcha game. Uh, like, well, so funny thing about that is uh, Famitsu uh, ran up a story about this uh, with uh, a direct quote from Yokotaro. The only thing Yokotaro said is, there will be gotcha. That's it. Oh. Yeah. 
but yeah so. it's it's just like a very quick look at what the game will look like so it just looks it has like the same similar color palette as like near automata same like third person perspective uh it doesn't really give you a whole bunch more than that just other than now you can have like imagery to put in your mind they, they had the little circle nub game. at the corner so, so they'll have like a virtual joystick uh, right. to, to move around um do we yeah, know what I that mean, little so ghost thing is um obviously there's a pod underneath it it's just a little rag yeah i, I was actually gonna make a joke like it's just, it's just a pod under a bed sheet there you go yeah, yeah. um no i have no clue i mean the, the, yeah it's it, just it, a little bit of a bit bit piece of news just this is what the new near tom not near tom near reincarnation the, the new music is nice like that, that's the highlight of the thing is the new piece of music it's like oh, yeah there you go Boom. also kind of a uh a surprise not even really an announcement this week because it was almost barely i'm talking about fantasy star online 2 where i had kind of like this really lengthy beta and we've talked about this game on a couple podcasts in in terms of the beta so i don't want to retread that ground well it wasn't even that lengthy of a beta that's the thing it's like it had like a weekend for closed beta and then it basically had two weeks of the open beta or some three weeks yeah three weeks of the open beta and then it was just like I guess so. But then, they're, but then, but then they're just kind of like there was no like there was no real like crossover period where they're just like, yep, it's released now. Like, and all of all that yeah, progression it, for console players carries forward. So I've heard stories of people already being like level seventy or whatever based on their open beta progress. Oh, there were two people according to uh, the official PSO two accounts uh, tweets that hit level seventy five in beta over the weekend. You're cutting out, but yeah, yeah. The, the the closed beta weekend, two people reached max max level or level seventy five during yeah. that. Yeah, and then also uh, people are obviously wondering, well, when's this going to release for PC? And they've announced that the PC release is set for late May. That's as specific as they got, with the footnote that it's going to be exclusive to the Microsoft Store, which has been kind of a point of confusion. Because I think we all expected it to be on the Microsoft Store because they're the ones that have been playing a big role in the publishing of this game in the West. But Microsoft has also really pushed this idea of being this like service platform. Like they've been putting their games on Steam. They've been putting a few of their games on Switch in an indirect manner in terms of like Ori and the Blind Forest. Uh, and to, to them to turn around and then for this project say it's Microsoft Store exclusive for PC just i wonder if it's a time exclusive thing yeah i I wonder if there's just a previous contract agreement that it has to be only for that for a set amount of months uh because there was this there was that leaked uh instruction manual for fantasy star online 2 um during the closed beta weekend that like leaked on the internet for a bit that had like uh mentioned a steam release in it as well so who knows what happened to that um yeah i mean it is what it is I think. Oh yeah, we can kind of speculate. Like, did Sega want this? Did Microsoft want this? Yeah. And I don't think I don't think we'll ever land on knowing which one's more likely to be true. It's just very. I don't think. I don't think Microsoft would. It specifically because of what Phil Spencer was saying last E3, where he said, "Oh, it'll be coming to other platforms too," and the fact that pretty much every Microsoft published games since since like Gears Five been available on steam i think it'll eventually come out to uh, yeah i think it'll eventually come out to steam and other platforms but they just can't just do contractual agreements right now they cannot mention it 
Yeah. That's, a, that, that's th- my gut feeling. What I think's happening, and again, this is just uh, a guess, is the fact that they said that all of the content is available by the fall, and maybe they're waiting until the fall to release it on Steam. So even though they're saying, oh, it's a full release, it's kind of still a technically, still sort of a beta until everything's fully launched in the fall. Yeah, so that, that does remind me, um, like, right now, I, I believe the, the current state of the game, uh, it only goes up to episode three, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and there was a, a, re- a reply from the Fantasy Star Online 2 account uh, to someone on Twitter, and then the, like asking like, oh, are you planning to like get uh, caught up with the Japanese version? What's going on? And then they did mention that they want to uh, achieve parity or at least all the content for the current Fantasy Star Star Online Two state in Japan, but within this year for the for the English version. So somewhere in twenty twenty, they plan to be caught up. Yeah, that that's an interesting and, goal um because that's a lot of content um, and it's so weird ton of content but because they're saying they want all of the japanese content version but it's like how are they what definition of content are they using are they counting the crossover stuff with that i imagine it's just episodes uh, that, uh, that's what i'm thinking it, and it, it'd, be, it'd be very hard for the crossovers to come out with licensing agreements and whatnot well here's a further question does this mean that Final Fantasy fourteen North America is finally getting the PSO two crossover event soon? <laughs> no wonder, because it could happen. Because oh. hey, even the FF fourteen is coming to Xbox, so I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so I think we have a few people on the site that are interested in trying out Fantasy Star, but I think most of us or focused on PC. So now it's the Microsoft store way or the highway, I suppose, which I don't really have like any big bias against it. I've been, I played plenty of games through um, the Xbox game pass. Pass, It's just basically a branch of Microsoft store. So like, I I don't have an quote unquote issue with it. It's just more of that confusing, like, huh, I wonder why that is. That's a bit weird. Uh, And like I said, we can speculate, but I don't think we'll know until more details come out about exactly when it's going to be releasing not only for other PC platforms, but for potentially a Sony console, whether it's PS4 or 5 at some point. Who knows? So last bit of news that we've got written down here is for something that's kind of in that weird tangential uh, RPG space, which we have covered this series on the website before, and that is XCOM, which is one of the favorites of uh, our boss, Alex Donaldson. Chimera Squad has been announced for PC, which is kind of like... It's it's a it's a lower but it's a, it's only priced for ten dollars. It's like a kind of a I don't know if spinoffs the right word for it, but it's just yeah. It's, it's like it's like a this. it's a sequel to XCOM two. So the events of it do happen after XCOM two. The price is normally twenty dollars, but I think there's a period where it's discounted by fifty percent. So it's ten dollars to like April something. Um, okay. Yeah, I I, I forgot to, what's that period, but um, yeah, it's it's a. Lower budget spinoff, a more constrained focus. To, just because it's a lo- like lower budget doesn't mean it's uh, like inherently worse. Um, it's more instead of like you on like a like a, a spaceship like in um, uh, XCOM one and two, um, you're kind of like this squad that's like uh, the peacekeepers of this uh, 
designated like land the where uh, humans and aliens can coexist in it. Uh, so and then the there's their um focus is like keeping the peace around these sectors around the city. So instead of like like traversing the planet, like addressing threats like on certain places in the planet, it's more smaller focused on uh, on the city block. Um, and, and then there's this the, like the the whole potential of this is really cool because this allows um, the developers to experiment where they want to ha- take the series next with a full mainline installment. I imagine. Uh, so the like a lot of the neat quirks about this game is having multiple alien races. Uh, be playable uh, as part of your squad now. So you see, like, genes on a lot of, like, these alien races. Like, what in the world is this game? There's a lot of, like, neat customization quirks uh, and flourishes to it that looks awesome. And I think one of the big, big, big changes uh, to this game gameplay-wise is, you know how in uh, XCOM Enemy Unknown and Enemy Within, um, where um, there are designated player phases and enemy phases, right? Like, in player phase, you can move all your people around uh, uh, however you want until you hit end turn, and then it's the enemy's turn. In this one, it's more uh, integrated via, uh, where like you have this specific character take their turn, then it might be the enemy's turn, the, this specific enemy's turn, then another character and whatnot. So it's all individually based instead of like whole phases for a player to enemy team. It's more character phase than character turn, enemy turn, character turn. Enemy right, turn. So it's more, it's more uh, divinity in that sense, which I believe yes. is that specific splitting of player and enemy turns, not not in phases, but as, as unit turns. Mm-hmm. And, and it's more uh, character focused, where like there'll be specific characters uh, who have like unique abilities. So I, I don't think they have like the whole uh, XCOM thing, where there's like recruits where you t- take in, and then they're like they're basically templates of how you want to spec them into. I think there's more designated, focused, distinguished units that, like, hey, like, say, uh, Bob here has the ability to, like, you know, throw things at the enemy or whatnot, and that that's only Bob's ability. But uh, that I'm just making up that, uh, but it seems that's they're taking it in that direction where it's more uh, character-driven abilities. Well, I didn't mean to make this comparison, but when I mentioned Divinity, that reminded me about how, like, a year and a half ago, they announced this. Divinity Fallen Heroes, which is kind of like you have your tactical RPGs and then you have your tactical games like XCOM, which are only like, not really, they're only RPGs in the sense that they're stat driven, really. Uh, it's, it's That's a line that everyone's going to draw in a different place. And sometimes if you want those experimental games where it's just like, it strips out a bunch of like the the excess, a bunch of the trimmings, then you're just like, you're, you're hyper-focused on specific gameplay aspects. Mm-hmm. That's something that something like Xbox Chimera Squad or Divinity Fallen Heroes if it ever gets rebooted would be would be perfectly tailored for. And I played uh, a original XCOM, but I only really played through it once. I, I bet I, I bet if you look at my Steam play time it's like 12 or 15 hours. Like I never really dug deep into it. Um and I never played the sequel. Uh but so I don't know if I'll ever really get around to going trying out Chimera Squad, but I do like the idea in general of that kind of hyper focused stripped down experimental title that just allows them just to kind of go wild and try out things that they probably i definitely want to try it yeah it it looks it looks really cool game yeah i I, they did uh give an example of like one of the abilities like uh in one of the bullet points said viper's tongue pull so i guess one of the alien races that you have uh like you know has the ability to like hook 
enemies in with their tongue, which is really funny. Uh, we, um, we call that the Yoshi. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, I yeah, want to get around to it, for, but uh, April twenty fourth, I believe. Details. Yeah, so pretty soon, yeah. Steam only ten dollars if you get it early. So uh, by this time next week, you could have played it for one day. I guess that's the same day as uh, Trials of Mana, which we actually ended up not talking yeah. about. I guess because there was really no new data for that. Uh, obviously, the demo for it's going to be out. tough next weekend. Not, yeah, because yeah. we'll, we'll get we'll get XCOM, Trials of Mana, Sekiro Wars as we launch into May. We'll have those, and then people obviously are still playing through Final Fantasy and Persona because it has such you know a long tail on that one. Well, it's definitely going to be hard for me because you have. To, I want to get to Trials of Mana. I want to try out this XCOM Chimera Squad, but also uh, there's this closed network test for this Gundam game also that's only available for like 40 hours that weekend. Oh, tell us about Gundam. Oh man. I going to be it's it's going to be hell for me because it opens up at 3 a.m. Pacific time and I want to get the most out of my time with that game. So I'm going to be fucking hot garbage mess. <laughs> that's going to be bad. Yo bed bedhead Josh Torres. Yeah. AM for his Gundam beta. <laughs> Uh, the sacrifices I have to pull for my robot games. Wins Armored Core. I know. That's what I'm saying. When are I'm we going to get more information about Elden Ring? Fuck if I know, man. Probably that IGN thing that's like uh, basically just stole the ESA's plans for E3. You know what? I'd, I'd, I guess I'd rather have I'll IGN. I'll be taking over ESA. your digital event plan. <laughs> yeah. All right. well, that covers all like the uh, the bit news for the week. So a lot of little tidbits here and there, nothing really major dropping. But we did have obviously a, a nice extended discussion about Final Fantasy, about Sakura Wars, and Fallout for what it's worth. Uh, and we'll keep talking about Sakura Wars and Trials of Mana as those release, and look forward to at some point once we know we got a bunch of people that are on board, we'll talk about we'll do a full spoiler dump of Final Fantasy. Seven hour uh, past of Final Fantasy yeah. Seven Dream. Continued adventures and, I, and Yeah, we'll also just have a Final Fantasy fourteen cast where James just talks about Stormblood. <laughs> there we go. And we all nod along. We do have a lot of but, like a, a lot of people who play FF fourteen. Probably in the same room. Yeah, if we can ever get uh Kyle back. And Kyle, Natalie to try to <laughs> track that entry. <laughs> <laughs> bring her back and be like hey i want to talk about ff14 right. with these people. if anything that would be the one you'd go for but this is oh, yeah. another issue of the of the tetracast as always you can find us on our website at rpgsite.net you can find us on twitter at rpgsite right now we are having a giveaway for a collector's edition not not the uh first class edition but the deluxe edition of final fantasy 7 remake uh you have like a one in thirteen thousand chance of getting it if you simply receive that so <laughs> I go. hear those are rare and pricey, so I, that's why I imagine a lot of people want one. And uh, you can obviously see the previews that we put up for Sucker Wars and Persona 5 Scramble on the site. You can always find our Discord channel from the link on our homepage. We also have YouTube and Facebook at RPGSiteNet. You can follow me, if you want, on Twitter at Z-E-O-M-A-S-S-I-C-O-T. Josh, where can they find you? You can find me at HD Kirin, H D K I R I N. I apologize if it's just going to be filled with Gundam nonsense for the following days. Who knows? 
Adam, where can they find you? Uh, K-I-N-G underscore S-E-B-A. And James? You can find me at T-H-E-S-W-W-E-E-T if you want to see crap about my experiences with three awards, yeah? <laughs> and as always, uh, we'll have this TetraCast next week, hopefully, in our seemingly weekly schedule that we have going on here. And we'll talk more about Final Fantasy, about Trials of Mana, and every other RPG, and what other game we're playing at the moment. So as always, we'll see you then. Take care.